Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today we've got Steven Crowder of Louder with Crowder. That is his massive YouTube show that has almost 5 million subscribers. He and I used to know each other way back in the day when he was a kid. He could barely drink, uh, barely legal, as they say, uh, when we worked at Fox News for a short time together. And now he hosts what he calls the number one conservative late night comedy show. And he is a riot and also profound and introspective and really interesting. I'm going to get to the full interview in one second. But first, I want to talk to you about Scoremaster. Uh, I shared a hot story a couple weeks ago. It nearly crashed their website, the Scoremaster website. The story is that the average American has 97 points. That's 97 points that they can quickly add to their credit score, but no idea how to get it. Most people don't even know that this is possible. They have crappy credit. They're like, oh, that's such is my lot in life. Not so. Scoremaster credit scientists discovered an algorithm that will super boost credit scores, not just a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine 97 points on top of your credit score. That is super important if you're refinancing your home or buying a car, applying for credit. Case in point, say you have mm, okay credit and you're buying a car. If you go to Scoremaster first and boost your credit score, just the average of 61 points, forget the great 97, you could save 9,000 bucks on that loan. And if you go to Scoremaster and boost your credit, just the average number before you apply for a home loan, you could save almost a thousand, hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand grand over the life of your loan. If you own a business, from getting a loan to funding projects to financing equipment, super boosting your business credit score can save you a fortune. Scoremaster puts you in control of your finances. Enroll in minutes and see how many plus points Scoremaster can add to your credit score. Visit scoremaster.com MK. That's scoremaster.com MK. And now, Stephen Crowder. Stephen, so good to have you here. Very excited for this interview. How are you? Thank you very much. I am. Uh, I'm okay. I think I told you that um, I have a, a friend here. We uh, we roll. We do jujitsu at the studio, and his his for- we should call him Tim Ginsu because his forearm crushed my trachea. So, if you hear me swallowing in a weird way or rustling with throat lozenges, that's why. So I, I apologize. Yet another reason not to exercise. Uh, you've been going nonstop. I mean, I've been watching you. I've been on your show a couple of times over these past few days. You are treating. I mean, you are like you are YouTube's. Brett Baer. Uh, like you're just on every hour bringing people the updates. Was is that new? Did you do that four years ago, too? Yeah. Well, I don't I wish I had Brett Baer's hairline like it is quite literally it's like good. a bonobo. 
chimpanzee. What's a bonobo? You know, well, it's the, it's the more human-like. They say that we, we share more in common with, is it bonobo or bonobos and chimpanzees? They look very similar, only I understand one is more angry. The point remains, Brett Bear has <laughs> then a... that's not a, Brett. He has a, no, his hairline is so low, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like when I look at it, yeah. there's no widow's peak. Uh, no, yeah, we did it in 2016. That's when we launched, um, you know, Mug Club. I was before that. It was a, a radio show that was syndicated, uh, but the Ladder with Crowder show. You know, Bill Bennett used to take Fridays off, which I would, you know, just love to do. He just took Fridays off, and so there was this morning drive slot that was six to nine, and there were a lot of radio stations that, uh, you know, they were filling hosts and they weren't thrilled with them. So they said, "Hey, a bunch of stations said, would you like to do the show?" And I said, "Well, you know, I never really wanted to do radio as a comedian, as someone who kind of did short videos on YouTube for a long time before that." But I said, "Sure, if it's in primetime drive, once a week in the morning, um, I think I can make that work." And then I found out that no advertisers wanted to advertise on the show. And so we started making up fake advertisements uh, when we were broadcasting as a podcast. And uh, then that led to covering the election. Um, I think we had like 30,000 people watching in 2016, which was all the people in the world. And we launched the show that became kind of daily, which is the, the iteration that people know now. So uh, it's been a crazy four years. Yeah. And now it's like some sort of huge number. We we were just looking up on the internet how you did in covering this year's election. I mean, you know, this this week, and it was something like 8 million people had viewed your coverage, which puts you above CNN, which is kind of awesome. I, I mean, I'll get to that because I wanted to ask you about the future of media, but you got to be feeling pretty good about having people watch the coverage because I happen to know that you tend to approach these matters in a red, white, and blue striped silky robe. So you have a different way. You're avant-garde, I'd say. Um, yeah, well, I was raised in Canada. And so uh, just a red and white robe is boring. It's just not really something that is it, that it pulls the eye. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of people. I don't, you know, the numbers were, it was fractured because they said they were going to stop the counting. Remember, so we were covering it. I think we covered it for about eight, nine hours. And then they said, okay, we're going to stop the counting. So I thought, well, there's nothing more to cover. So we left the stream. And... Uh, they were going to reconvene at 9 or 10 a.m. The next thing I know, I take an hour nap in a hammock and Michigan and Wisconsin flipped. All of a sudden they found, you know, 100 something thousand votes because they started counting not at 9 or 10, but at like 4.47 a.m. Um, and so we were all just glued to our screens and we said, well, we have to come back. And I, I think the number ended up being something closer, like, I, I don't know, I, I, 15 million or something like that. So it was, it was really... And, and we had so many silly things too. Like people don't understand. We had my producer attacked. A, you know, we had a professional attack dog. We shot Gerald in a bulletproof vest because they're a sponsor, Spartan Armor. Like our, our goal is always to entertain first. I've always wanted to do that because if you're not entertaining, you know, you can find anybody talking about the current political issues. Um, and I try to get that right. And uh, I try to be either enlightening, informative, or entertaining. And that's why I was as surprised as anyone that. Uh, Apparently, I should be a professional pollster because they got it wrong. And the only calls that I made were were dead right. And I just no one was paying attention to early voting. And I don't know why. I don't know when I was I was talking with people here. I said, am I crazy? I said, why are people even acting like Florida and Ohio are a toss up? I immediately put them on the map. And everyone else said, oh, no. I said, no, I guarantee you he's going to win Ohio by five points. Guarantee you he's going to double his, his wins in Florida. People can see it. It was on air. It was the first thing that I said because I was looking at the early voting and comparing it to 2016. So um, everything else kind of, I still, I thought uh, Georgia and North Carolina were, were things that he would win. Um, and then I said, then he just needs kind of one of the major states in the Midwest. So it, it really is a changing, isn't it, right now, of the guard. And, and I think all pollsters should be fired uh, yeah. without cause. 
Oh, did you hear today? Nate Silver came out and he basically said, F you. This is this is being taped on Thursday. F you for criticizing me. We got it right. You know, we we basically tell you what the polls are saying. That's pretty much all we do. We just assess what the polls are saying. So this isn't on me. Can you I mean, give me a break, right? People are disgusted with him, with the polling industry, with the misinformation, because we know it isn't it isn't in good faith that these people they refuse to believe that there was a shy Trump voter. They refuse to try to figure out in a way that a guy like, you know, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar did how to at least try to get at it. Right. But by the way, have you ever actually like most people have not seen Nate Silver. He looks like he lost his precious. Uh, what does that mean? It's a Gollum reference. He looks like a, he looks like a cave dweller. <laughs> Okay, that's a, it's okay. a. It was a long way around. I apologize. I don't always take the shortest path to the sting, uh, but no. Here's the thing. He can say we just tell you what the polls are telling you. No, no. And here's the, here's the issue too with Nate Silver and Five Thirty Eight. I would go and I would see their polls that were rated A, and those were the polls that had it most wrong in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then the polls that he would have rated C were the ones that were closest because he doesn't like Rasmussen and he doesn't include the. Uh, is it is it pronounced Trafalgar? How is it that pronounced? Trafalgar. Yeah, yeah. Trafalgar. Trafalgar. Yeah. He didn't, didn't even include those. Um, and I don't know why if he's this genius, he doesn't include what we see with early voting. And we have the percentages of, of early voting, what was mail-in versus what was in person. You know, I got those numbers at Fox, not some not some Republican think tank. And then no I combined way. that by target early. And I looked at uh, the actual registered early voting versus the modeled party early voting. And those seem to track. And you kind of have to use the modeled party early voting, sorry, because a lot of these states don't tell you the registered voting early on. And I said, you know what? Florida and Ohio are not even going to be close. Uh, so what I called was Florida, Ohio. I made my map and I said, uh, Georgia and North Carolina, I think, or Donald Trump was going to be closer. Arizona, I thought would be Donald Trump. Looks like it still might be uh, at the time of this recording. Uh, and then I said, could be any of these Midwestern states at that point. Can we talk about what's happening now as of now? Because I'll tell you, I'm, I'm as confused as anybody, but I have connections in both camps. Connections. That's like connections. That's like somebody who had a, a sex change operation. Like, do you like surprises? What's going on? <laughs> Which, by the way, I wouldn't no. be surprised considering, considering the dominatrix role you played with Mark Cuban. I listened to that podcast and I was so I couldn't sit down for a week. Oh, thank you. <laughs> hey, I'm not against dominatrix, but that's not the same, same thing as trans surprise. Um, okay. Uh, so, I know, but I'm. I was combining the two, in other words, in the interaction with Mark Cuban. I will tell you this. I thought you did a fantastic job of being respectful, giving Mark Cuban room, but um, holding his feet to the fire. So, you know, I was nervous to do this because I know that uh, I know that you're tricky. I know that you're quick on your feet, but I thought you did a really good job. Actually, my wife sent it to me. She said, you have to listen to this. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. You know, I give him credit for, for coming on and having the conversation because I can't think of another guy in his position who would have. And right. um, I, I didn't exactly get like a bouquet of roses from him after the fact. I'm not sure if he if he's coming back on. But either way, I'm OK because we, we had a really good discussion. And, uh, you know, I respect that. I respect him for doing it. I want to ask you about Trump, though, because since you've been covering it so closely and, and what I'm hearing from Team Trump, right, the people not not his inner circle, but people who are very close and are intimately involved in trying to get him elected are saying they actually believe today he has won. That he's won it. And I've I've talked to these people many times. He's won Arizona. They they do not believe the vote in Arizona. They think he's won Georgia. He's won Pennsylvania. And they think he's won Nevada. Like that's what they're saying. Then I talked to my contacts over in, you know, the decision world at Fox, and they're saying there's zero chance that Arizona flips back, that Fox made the right call, that not even if he gets 57% of the outstanding vote in Arizona. 
can he turn the numbers around? He cannot do it, that the outstanding vote is in Democratic counties. There's zero chance he's going to make up the difference. That's why they're so confident in yeah. their call. And I think, you know, right now the, the narrative is spun out of the out of control where people are openly booing Fox and they're going after Arnon Michigan, the head of the decision desk, who's a straight arrow. Uh, I don't I'm My head is kind of swimming. How about you? I think that's dishonest of Fox to say. Uh, now, I, I don't disagree with what you said. Now, what we are seeing, though, there are quite a few um, sources that say that Donald Trump is winning over 63 percent of those votes. Keep in mind that they counted the mail-in votes, I believe, in Arizona first. The outstanding ballots are people who voted in person. And what we're seeing in a lot of those scenarios is about a 2.5 to 1 ratio of Republicans to Democrats. And the county is not as liberal as you think. But my issue with Fox News uh, there, when I say it's dishonest, is they say we're confident in our call. They called it with zero percent of the vote. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. That's not true. No, they had 80% of the vote in. No, no, no. When Fox News called it, it was 70-something percent of the vote, I believe. And they called it it 80% of the vote. That's what Arnon Mishkin said. Trust me when I tell you Arnon Mishkin does not lie. (laughs) He does not lie. He had they had 80% of the vote in, and that's why they felt confident tabulating it, because they can see where the remaining 20% is coming from. And they have algorithms and and data and a history to figure out what the percentages would have to be for Trump to close it out in the remaining 20. So go ahead. They consistently call the other states the same way at those same margins. That were that yes, close. they do. They do. I mean, trust me, Stephen. I, I'm, I've worked with these guys for years. I was the person who did polling with them. I was, you know, they would do the exit polling, and I was the one who'd be on the air before I became an anchor, explaining to people what they said. And then I became an anchor, and I worked with them even more intimately. And then there was the infamous 2012 thing where Carl Rove tried to say they were wrong, and I did the walk down the hall. I know these guys. They. They couldn't give a damn who wins the election. They care about getting it right. And so if the outstanding vote is in counties that they think it's going to make it too close to call, they won't call it. That's why they waited so long in states like Florida. Well, they did wait longer in Florida than uh, ABC, that's for sure. However, uh, sorry, not Florida, Arizona. Um, But a lot of places called Arizona long before they've called other states, for example, like Pennsylvania, or uh, if I'm not mistaken, one of the major, uh, one of the major uh, um, news channels when we were watching, because it was tough, we were watching CNN mainly, and they were the last to call everything. I think even called Arizona before Ohio. I don't remember who it was who did that, but that did take place. Uh, I think you're right about Fox News. They generally want to be right. Um, but I also think that, listen, there's a component to this, and maybe you disagree. Maybe you think there's 0% that this is the case. I think a lot of these networks want to be first. Mm, I don't think that's Fox at all. Trust me. Okay. I, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen the, the competitive pressure come on them. I mean, mainly from me and Brett out there on, on election night saying, like, where's the call? Where's the call? CNN's called it. NBC's called it. Why aren't we calling it? And we get these the slow roll molasses from the decision desk, like, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Let me just tell you, I disagree with what you just expressed. I don't think that the truth is governed by consensus of other networks calling it. I think that there could be one place that's right and all of the other places are wrong. And so I don't know with Arizona. I think there's a strong chance that Donald Trump loses Arizona. But from what I'm saying, there still is a chance that he wins it. I do think it was yes. called early. Yeah, I don't I don't think... I don't I don't disagree with that. I, I, I agree with you that there is still a chance. I just understand that the people who are experts at it, which doesn't include me, are saying I'm wrong. You know, I can see the numbers. I can see why people still have hope. And I'm not listen. And I am not discrediting them at all. Nate Silver's an expert. Quinnipiac. No, he is an isn't. Expert. No, he isn't. No, you cannot put Nate Silver. The, if you're, but you're confusing exit polls with predictive polling that happened before. These guys are 
analyzing actual vote. I'm comparing the idea of deferring to authority, right? The appeal to authority intellectual fallacy. And all I'm saying is you could be right, you could be wrong, but a lot of people deferred to Nate Silver. A lot of people deferred to Monmouth or Emerson or Quinnipiac. These were considered the golden standard of polls. And all I'm saying right now is you could be right, but I am not going to say that Fox News is right in their call. And you know me, I worked for Fox News for four and a half years. I'm not going to yeah. say that they're right because they're experts, because we've seen a lot of people uh, who are experts be wrong. That's all I'm saying. I understand. And I understand. We have a huge pool of data here that really no one else has access to with the kind of show that we do. I think Fox could be right. I don't think they did anything. I don't think they did anything dishonest. I think, though, right now, and what I was saying was dishonest, is when they say we feel confident now in our call. That still doesn't justify the call with 80%. That's all. So my, my own, and my feeling in, rea in reaction to that as somebody who's worked with these guys and done this for a lot of years is with respect, that's armchair quarterbacking. you got a lot of people who have no idea what it's like to be on a decision desk and do this for a living, trying to sit yeah. in their armchair like, well, I can see the vote myself. And they don't know any of the algorithms or the way this is done or the methodological approach that these guys have, have tried and tested at midterm elections, at general elections, at primaries, year after year after year. And it's worked. And I've worked with them since 2006 was the first time I was on the air with them. They've never gotten one wrong. Not one. They've never they've been under pressure. They've been told they got it wrong. They've been told they were partisan. They have never had to repeal one. Not once. So I'm not saying that that couldn't happen now. I'm I'm smart enough to realize anything could happen. But I'm just saying that the the calls to, to reduce the Arnon Michigan to like some partisan and say, like, Fox is bad. And this is because Fox has an ideology. I reject that. I know the guys making this decision. They're good faith operators and they're super smart and super good at this. But M Megan, Megan, I think that, you know, I'm not saying Fox is bad because Fox isn't. That's not my argument. Yeah, you understand. Not that. you. Yeah. What I am saying. And Fox has gotten a lot wrong. Fox has gotten a lot wrong. Maybe not with any states ever called. I would have to look back. I don't have authority, but I trust. I take your word for it. That doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. But I'll tell you what. All the executives at Fox told me that this show that I do right now would never exist. It would never happen. I was oh, wasting my time. Come on. That's that's a new argument. That That's not stay in my lane. I understand in your lane. What I'm saying is I don't say that they must be right because the experts say that that's so. The numbers right now don't say that that's necessarily so. And I think there's a strong chance that Biden wins Arizona. I just think and I think that you have a little bit, a little bit. And I want to keep this, of course, friendly. I'm very appreciative to be here. So I don't want you to take this as confrontational. A little bit of a blind spot, because when Americans hear the experts, the experts are wrong about. So we can just isolate it. To I'm not just saying Fox. that. Now, you, you're you're mate, you're mate, you're building a straw man right now. I'm not saying the experts say. And I and I don't think you're right at all to compare these guys to Nate Silver. The pollsters got Nate Silver has a very spotty history. Arnon Mishkin does not. And my 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 belief in them, which is not unfettered, but my belief in them is not because they are experts. It is because I have had experience with them. It is like having cancer that recurs from time to time. And the doctor sits you down and says, this isn't it. And the doctor takes a look at the new lump and says, this is bad. And then something happens a couple of years later and he says, don't worry. I mean, I've had people who've gone through this in my life. You develop a respect for that person's judgment based on their history of accuracy. It isn't deference to authority. It is my my experience with this person being right every time leads me to have a greater confidence in him being right now. You could be right. I don't know. So you just mentioned your personal experience. I don't have personal experience with that person. I think if you, what you say is true, that Fox News has never gotten one wrong, then um, it's not even up for debate. Of course, Arizona has gone uh, Biden. But that's not my experience with this person. All I'm saying is 
I don't take the word of one person or one expert. I didn't just say Nate Silver, but all of these polls, which I know is what we're going to be talking about. I think a lot of Americans, and that doesn't mean that Americans are right, but I'm saying that the language that is used, this is what Americans have a problem with. And when people talk about not having trust in our institutions, there's because there's a lot of this talk, well, the experts know whatever it is, X, X, Y, A, B, C. And I know in this instance, you have a lot of personal experience and they have a great track record. Let me really simplify what I'm saying. I don't think that Fox News is bad. I don't think that they're trying to call things incorrectly because they have an ideology. I think Brett Baer is probably the best broadcaster in news. I think the man is fantastic. And I think they are probably right about Arizona. I also think they called it too early. Just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, can I tell you, I mean, to give you the point, um, I do think that a lot of Americans, including me, uh, are a little too deferential to authority. And I have been surprised over the past four years to see some of the institutions that I really revered and trusted entirely to have had the mask pulled down as pretty nakedly partisan. The FBI comes to mind, right? Like when when Jim Comey first was getting attacked, I I was 100 percent a Jim Comey defender. I was like, what do you mean? It's James Comey. Like he's beyond reproach. Why are these people saying he's partisan? I, I would never believe that 100 percent wrong. So I'm humble enough to realize I don't know everything. And I and I I also see it. It's not even just the FBI or some of these big government organizations, but big tech and media. You know, our industry, it, it, it is not trustworthy. That It's the same thing. I wouldn't say I always trusted media, but I think most people out there trusted Uncle Walter, trusted Peter Jennings, you know, some of the people we grew up with, or I did. And now it's 100% different. So I get that my hopes could be dashed in Arnon, Michigan, and uh, and I'm not rooting for Arizona one or the one way or the other. But I do like these guys because they're former colleagues. But I, they could be dashed because I've had them dashed repeatedly. And and I know you've had your own situation with big tech, where that's another industry where it's like, oh wow, they're so big, they employ so many Americans, and then you turn out it turns out they're completely partisan and agenda driven. Yeah, and and I think uh, to mention your, I keep hearing you. How do you pronounce his name? Arnon, Michigan. Arnon, Michigan. Arnon, Michigan. Arnon, Michigan. No, Michigan. <laughs> what? Wait, what's the last name you're saying? Michigan, like M I S H. Oh, Michigan. Because yeah, I was thinking about Detroit. I thought you were like you. You were like you had a Joe Biden moment where you're trying to say RNC, Michigan. <laughs> okay, I, uh, I don't think that should dash your hopes. If, for example, they're incorrect on Arizona, I think that we are at a point right now. You mentioned Walter Cronkite. I don't think that Walter Cronkite was an unbiased journalist. I think he was no, certainly he better wasn't. than a lot of what you have now, but he said you basically couldn't be a journalist and not be a liberal. There are quotes from Walter Cronkite. I just think it was hidden from a lot of Americans before we had new media. And so I think the requirement is for everybody out there to aggregate information from both sides. And that's why I think at this point, anyone who claims to be a centrist, they're actually less valuable in your aggregate pool because I would rather know what Megyn Kelly is saying. Uh, sorry, what, uh, well, what Megyn Kelly is saying. Yes, of course, plug for your show here. But I also would like to know what Rachel Maddow is saying, what Megyn Kelly is saying, what Sean Hannity is saying. I would like to know what Tucker Carlson is saying and what Lawrence O'Donnell is saying. I don't really care what Anderson Cooper is saying because the guy isn't really honest about his point of view. Chris Cuomo mm -hmm. thinks that he's my God, an actual journalist. So I think Americans have to do a lot of this work themselves now. Um, Sadly, they're, they're, you're right. They're yeah, they're required. Yeah. And I think... I have a lot of Americans upset because it was trust the experts when it came to the election. And I think that we're seeing a lot of examples of it being rife with not just fraud. People misuse the term election fraud, but also ineptitude. You know, we talked about this on our show. 
this election. There are over 2.5 million ballots that could potentially be compromised. Now, does that mean that someone was scratching out Donald Trump and putting in Joe Biden? No, but it means ballots that either were sent to uh, addresses where people no longer lived or there were people who were dead. We've found examples in the past of ballots that the signature didn't match or there was no signature on it whatsoever, or people who voted twice. There, there are quite a few examples of compromised ballots. Not, and so the media says there's no example of widespread voter fraud. No, no, but there is an example of certainly mail-in voting being rife with errors, as well as in some cases, small as they may be, and we'll find out after this election, fraud. And Americans really have a problem with people saying, no, 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 it's just, uh, there's no such thing as voter fraud. There's no evidence for that. And that's what they see in the, that's what they see in the media, right? But Americans are going, well, hold on a second. I've just read several articles, and I know people will just say it's fake news, but I just read an article that came down from, uh, you know, an actual, uh, like a local court, and I don't know, in Pennsylvania, where there were 800 ballots that had to be discounted. Or you can see 50,000 ballots, I think it was in Ohio or Michigan that had problems, and they go, those were outstanding. So how can you say there's none, Brian Stelter? And they just don't follow up. No, they, they think it's a Republican talking point. And, and, and look, it's, it, it is correct that it would be tough to dismiss a, a gap of 10,000 or 80,000 votes by trying to right. find some voter fraud or, or, you know, fraudulently completed ballots. That's a that's a tough hoe. But um, but it's also not true to say that there's no voter fraud, as the mainstream will say, as CNN, they'll just dismiss that out of hand. I mean, Chris Hayes was just going after me and others and Fox News and so on as like, this is just a lie that the right wing puts out there every year. No, we've seen it. We, we've seen it. And, and it doesn't mean it has to be it hugely widespread, but we've seen enough, we've caught enough to, to wonder how deep does it go? And that's a legitimate question to ask when it's a tight race. Sure. And even more when you just consider how, how I mean, the post office, the post office hasn't turned a profit in 13 years, Megan Kelly. Can you believe that kind of job security? No. If you where you lost money for 13 years. What I'm saying is, no, I'm not necessarily, necessarily saying that Nancy Pelosi is doing a spirit cooking seance and changing the ballots with a Sharpie. What I am saying is the post office can't get it there within 10 days and they can't turn a profit in a decade and a half. I don't really want an election run by effectively the DMV. And that's a valid position for Americans to take. <laughs> Of course. And the thing that makes me worry ab about this vote more than anything, as I watch the vote counters, you know, go through each ballot without letting the vote watchers get within 100 yards of them. Right. It's like tough to watch from that far away unless you've got some binoculars and you can really zoom in. Um, right. Is the abject and open hatred for Trump? I mean, he is a singular figure in in. Yeah for decades now in American politics in terms of the hatred for him. He, they've been told, we've been told by, by you know, a lot of these Democrats in the media that he's a Hitler-esque figure. So if you're sitting there counting votes and you actually believe that, who's to say you're not going to think that the ends justify the means? And that's why poll watchers at, at a point like this are more important than ever. Well, who aren't allowed in in Detroit, right? Right. Right. And it's like, so it, what would be the reason not to do it? Just like protect yeah. the integrity of the vote. Well, here's the one thing when they this is and you correct me if you just dis, disagree with me here. But when they say Donald Trump was trying to erode trust in American institutions, I go by having people vote in person like they always have, by saying that there, there are errors with mail in voting. Donald Trump, when we're talking about transparency all the time, Detroit, we're saying, hey, make sure the poll watchers are there and don't cover up the glass to the polling station with Bristol boards. OK, how about that? The left mm -hmm. is the 
one said, no, we're going to block them out. You know what? We're going to end all counting. And then we're going to start again in, oh, 45 minutes where Kenosha, for some reason, flips by 15 to 20 points. The same county, by the way, a small county. And we're not going to give you answers. And we're not going to let the poll watchers be in there. Donald Trump is not the one saying, do away with the electoral college. Donald Trump is not the one saying, do away with the current American electoral system. Donald Trump's not saying any of those things. He's saying, hey, we got to make sure that this process is in the light of day and is honest. I haven't seen Donald Trump try to erode, is he one, is he trying to pack the court? The only institution he's eroded trust in is the media. And I think that it should die and I will urinate on the ashes gleefully. So I think <laughs> when you look at Joe Biden, who's saying, oh, no, hold on a second, we're actually, we want more mail-in voting than ever. We might pack the courts. I don't know. We, we should do away with the Electoral College, which Kamala Harris has, has discussed. What, okay. What, what do you believe in in the United States of America? How are you not trying to erode trust in institutions? And something else, too, that I think a lot of people in the media miss, Megan. Remember that famous quote, right? The fine people on both sides. And I'm not going where you think I'm, I'm going to go here because obviously We're Donald Trump's in Trump America. and Charlottesville. Charlottesville, yes, um, where he's, people, the famous quote was, he said, find people on both sides, and no one included the context of him saying, I'm not, I'm not saying neo-Nazis and white supremacists who should be condemned totally. So that, of course, is the one story that people tell, and it's true. The media took it out of context. I don't think anyone has condemned white supremacy or neo-Nazis more than Donald Trump because no one's been asked as much. However, I actually see something beautiful in that quote and a pattern of behavior with Donald Trump that a lot of people miss. And keep in mind, I couldn't stand Donald Trump in 2016. I said that if he's a Republican candidate, we deserve to lose. Those were my words, and I had to eat them because I was wrong. But what Donald Trump said was, I'm not talking about neo-Nazis, okay, put that on the shelf, discount that. He goes, but there were people there who wanted to take down these statues, these Confederate statues, and they had a reason to be there. And there were people there who also believed that it was a part of their heritage, and they wanted to keep it up. And there were fine people on both sides. In other words, Donald Trump mm -hmm. is saying people who disagree with me can still be fine people. Can you find me any example of Donald Trump calling Joe Biden supporters ugly or deplorable? No, he or attacks fat. Joe Biden. He attacks the media. He doesn't, yeah, or fat. He doesn't attack the people. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, they attack half of the American electorate. They attack half of this country. And Donald Trump has pretty consistently, it's like Woody Allen and Annie Hall just ripping up the speeding ticket. I'm sorry, I, I just have a general problem with authority. He really does seem to have a heart for all Americans. And we have not seen him attack middle America like these other people have. We've seen him attack the media. We've seen him attack Joe Biden. I think that's fair game. But no, no one talks about that. To me, that's beautiful. I can't stand these asshats who want to tear down anything that's offensive or a monument. But for Donald Trump to say, but those can also be fine people. They just have disagreements. My, my experience of Trump, not personal, but just observational, um, well, maybe personal too, is that as long as he thinks you like him, he, he's good with you. Like if he thinks you like him or at least are open-minded to him, he likes you. It's only if he thinks you don't like him that he'll turn on you and he'll say nasty things on Twitter and it'll be offensive and so on and so forth. But I've never heard him go after all all Democrat voters, like the, the people in the middle of the country who he would like to have vote for him as deplorable, as uniformly racist. Now, he'll rip on the political class. I've heard him do that a lot. But this we've seen that this entire four years we've seen it isn't enough to call him racist, xenophobic and all this stuff. If you support him, you are one, too. And, and one of the things that has struck me this week, Stephen, is as as he's is the numbers have been coming in. And even as Joe Biden is looking like he's winning, you still have the pundits on MSNBC and CNN every night crying a tear in their soup, talking about what a racist country this is. It's like, what? I don't get it. Like, even with him losing, 
we got to listen to these lectures. And you've got people saying, no, 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 no. Wokeism has been defeated. No, it hasn't. It's been dealt. It's been dealt a blow at the polls. But wokeism itself wasn't defeated. It won't be defeated. They're too ideologically committed to it. And they'll see an affirmation of their crazy principles, no matter what the vote. Yeah, I can only imagine where would this election be if we actually had a fair press, if we actually had an unbiased press? I mean, think about this for a second. You had someone go out and tweet what was effectively a typo, a typo that added a zero, right? The 128,000 new votes that were found, uh, I believe, was it uh, was it Michigan? I think it was Michigan or it was mm-hmm. Wisconsin. Yeah, Michigan, Michigan. Uh, yeah. And Donald Trump said, what is this? And his response, which is a question, what is this, was labeled as misleading. But Twitter never labeled the actual tweet, which was a typo by 100,000 wrong. That wasn't labeled misinformation. Here's something else, too. I can't I'll I'll tell you uh, off air. I'll send you this picture so you can verify and take my word for it. But um, there's a reporter at Washington Post, I believe, named Philip Bump. Okay, and a friend of mine sent him a message when that tweet went up. Okay, an update gives Biden 100 percent of the new votes, 128,000. I'm reading this right now. My friend said, what is going on here? And he said they counted votes in a heavily pro-Biden area. Not complicated. In other words, at this point, we didn't know that it was a typo. But a rant, but 128,000, 100% new votes found for Biden. At this point, Philip Bump at the Washington Post didn't think there was anything fishy and had no interest in investigating. So I'm saying there is no level of fraud or corruption at all that would cause them to investigate or give them pause. If 128,000, which afterwards, oh, a couple hours later, he didn't know it was a typo at this time. And he was saying, no, 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 that checks out. That to me is terrifying. Well, he, he's the same guy who went after Trafalgar as completely discredited and a hack and, you know, doesn't know what he's doing. And he got, Trafalgar got it a lot more right than the Washington Post did, Philip Bump's organization, which was predicting that Biden would be up, I think, 17 points in Wisconsin. Wrong, sir. Wrong. Right. But there's not going to be any They're They're not going to take accountability for any of this. You're already seeing people say, well, sort of in the margin of error. If you just look at this one time, we said this one thing. I'm not hoping for accountability. Here's the thing. You mentioned Trafalgar, but yeah. Trafalgar doesn't fit on the fact checking board of the three biggest companies in the world of YouTube, Alphabet, Google and Twitter and Facebook, Washington Post and this asshat do. That's mm-hmm. the issue. You're, the guy who said 128,000, 100 percent for Biden. No problem. They're the ones who have the ear of the people who determine what is misleading. That's my point. It's not an isolated random reporter who we know most of them are hacks and they suck. It's the fact that these people have been assembled as a team of determining what is an authoritative source in today's media with all major companies. And when you're talking about big tech, they're more powerful than the Roman Empire. People don't understand. There have never been companies more powerful. They're more powerful than governments. Back to Steven in one moment. But first, if you have not tried Super Beats Soft Chews, you're missing out. I love Super Beats Soft Chews because they make me feel more energized without that jittery feeling you can get from too much coffee. Plus, they taste great. More than that, they are packaged so conveniently you can just throw them in your bag before you head to work so you can have them on the way or while you're in your office, like I do here in the studio. Super Beats Soft Chews combine non-GMO beets with a powerful new ingredient, grape seed extract. The grapeseed extract used in Super Beets Chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. So you can eat something delicious and help your health. Better blood pressure obviously is a good thing. It means more energy and it's the way nature intended it without the jittery, jittery caffeine or stimulants. Now, just take two delicious chews anytime, a day, anywhere to get the blood pressure support you need. Do what I did and support your heart health with delicious Super Beets Chews. 
Get your Superbeats shoes today at getsuperbeats.com slash MK. And when you buy two bags, they will throw in the third for free. That's getsuperbeats.com slash MK. For our audience who doesn't know this, and let me just give them a little background on you, because not that everybody doesn't know Steven Crowder, but just in case, you're only 33, which is just crazy to me. I can't believe you're only 33. You're married. You don't have kids yet, no? No, we don't. Hopefully soon, God willing. Okay, so uh, born in Michigan, but raised in Canada, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. The land of Justin Trudeau. So let me just start with, how did you wind up conservative, right? Because I think think of you know Canada, and I just think of I don't know Pinko Kami, Justin Trudeau. What? I know. I'm just saying. It's most people I know from there come out more left leaning. Well, listen, and I hope I'm not touching on a sore spot, but obviously people know you asked a question about blackface, which there was all of this uproar, whereas with Justin yeah. Trudeau, the woke liberal Canadian press, he didn't just do it once. Like, it's his raison d'etre. He was doing it in talent shows, and he was showing up to sporting events in blackface when there was no reason to be in blackface. It's like he just liked being in blackface, and nobody <laughs> cared. I mean, just, think of, have you seen all of the pictures? The funniest thing. Yes. The fu- thing I think I've ever seen in my life. We were sitting here and there was a press conference. Remember the first time that uh, it had been revealed that Justin Trudeau, for people who don't know, he's a Canadian prime minister. Many people may not because Canada is a silly and consequential place, but he had done blackface <laughs> and he was yes. being interviewed by reporters. So he's doing this press conference and he says, uh, I, I did uh, do this. I did go in, uh, in, in dress up one time and it was a uh, very poor judgment, a mistake. Uh, and I'm very sorry. Thank you. And as he's walking out, someone says, Excuse me, Prime Minister Trudeau. Yeah, was that? Uh, were there any other moments where you did blackface? And he turns back. He goes, uh, "There was one time where I did wear makeup and I sang Deo." Thank you. No more questions. I'm like, "Wait, <laughs> banana song?" And he just tried to skim over it, like he knew that was in his past, and he was just trying to. And he has this. I'm so, so he went blackface, going Deo, Deo. When I come back. It's it's worse than old minstrel shows. And he had to answer the question because he knew they were going to find it. People here, they thought I was going to need a ventilator. I was laughing so hard. That's the kind of stuff. That's why I'm conservative. I love seeing pompous uh, authoritarians taken off their pedestal. And really what it comes down to with Canada, I have an American citizenship. Um, my dad has always been more right-leaning. And I started working really young. You know, I started uh, working uh, 12 years old doing voice work in cartoons and commercials. And it started at the dinner table. Ronald Reagan has talked about that. My dad would just have conversations. He'd go, okay, that's a check for, uh, you know, doing uh, for Arthur. Uh, this is what's going to be gone. I think at the time it might have mm-hmm. been like 54%. I said, well, why? He goes, well, that's because the government takes it. And I would say, well, why? He said, well, because they also, they pay for your health care. And I go, but our health care sucks. You know, I knew this as a kid. Um, so my dad explained this to me early on. And then, you know, foundationally as a Christian, um, they're just, I'm precluded from supporting anyone in the current Democratic Party as it exists. So that's really all, uh, all it came down to. And to give you an idea, Canadians, they're all jealous of Americans. Do you know the most popular destination? I was raised in the South Shore of Montreal. Uh, so kind of like Brooklyn to Montreal, an area there called the South Shore. But that's a big city, right? You're talking about millions of people. We would drive an hour to Plattsburgh, New York. Sure. Which is the most 
Podunk town, you can, but just because it was the land of cool stuff that we didn't get in Canada and everything was, you know, maybe 30 to 40% less, even when you took into account the exchange uh, because of the taxes in Canada. So a lot of Canadians like to talk crap on the United States, but they, they, they really do wish that they were American. And the fact that Canada is still allowed to, allowed to exist to me is the greatest proof that uh, the United States is not the evil uh, empire superpower people claim it to be. Because if they wanted to take over Canada, it would take about an hour and a half. <laughs> it's too cold for us to want it. And I hope you're listening, Debbie Murphy. Debbie Murphy is my senior producer on the show. She's been with me since the beginning of my time at Fox. She's my editorial producer. And I love Debbie Murphy. And I love having Debbie Murphy with me in New York. But you know what Debbie Murphy did? She married a damn Canadian. And then she moved to damn Canada. And she had a bunch of damn Canadian babies. And now I can't get her back here. And she's actually producing this show from damn Canada. Oh, gosh. Well, I hope where it's not Quebec, is it? She's not in Montreal. Yeah, Toronto, I think, right? Yeah. I don't know. Oh. They all blend together from down here. <laughs> Toronto's a boring sister, but it's it's not nearly as socialist and crazy. I mean, Quebec is just the land of, of, of strip clubs and socialism. So it's well, beautiful. On the bright visit. side, I, I don't have to give her any benefits because, you know, she's got all the socialist uh, offerings of, of the, the government up there. So let's so, so you're 33. You were a child voiceover actor. You become conservative. And then the next thing I know, the way I first came to know you was you're 21, I think, and you come to Fox News. Now, that's a that's a good break for you, right? A 21 year old guy. And and what I'll tell you what I remember about you. And then you tell me what your experience was. You were hilarious. You were very smart. You were provocateur. You'd go on college campuses and needle people and argue with them. And it was fun to watch. And then you were gone. And I was like, somebody probably felt threatened by him and decided he should no longer be here. But that was complete supposition on my part. I never found out what happened. So how did you get that job? And what was that all about? All right. So you're, you're this, is this the portion where, where we dish, where we dish like a couple of bitches? I'll do it. Yeah, yeah do I've it. got my Oprah hat on. Um, no. So, yeah, I started acting and, and uh, doing, you know, voice work. I started doing stand up in my mid teens. So um, I actually got into the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, which um, which a lot of people would think it's, it's actually harder if you're in Montreal to get into the festival because there are only so many spots. But I got into it when I was about 18. And that took me to Los Angeles and New York to shoot some pilots and some films. Uh, and I was always right leaning. You know, I was always right. My first manager was black and, and uh, he didn't really know that I was conservative until I actually came out and I was doing you know shows in New York and the Laugh Factory. And back then the improv was still there. And uh, then I would just get into trouble on sets because I didn't really keep my mouth shut. Um, so what happened was I really sort of became disenchanted with the industry after shooting a film. And uh, I told my parents at I believe I was maybe 19 or 20. I said, all right, I'm going to stay with you guys. Give me six months. I'm going to treat this thing like a full-time job. And it was YouTube. Mm -hmm. And That's I don't good. know that someone like me that could come up today. What I did was I direct messaged hundreds of thousands of people asking them to subscribe to my channel. And the first video that ever went semi-viral, which back then was like 20,000 plays, was uh, me was Crazy Pete's Abortion Barn. And what it was, was I was reading from Planned Parenthood's website, but like a bad used car salesman, because they were saying, we offer the highest quality uh, healthcare services at most affordable prices. And so I you know, had this character, I was like, we're slashing babies and slashing grasses. And it was really distasteful. And everyone was shocked that someone would do this. And then the next uh, video that I uploaded was uh, me as uh, Muhammad. And I was reading from the Quran where he beat his six-year-old wife, Aisha. And I did like a Three Stooges routine with multiple wives. And that's where I started talking with Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart uh, was shocked. And he sent me to, you might remember a guy named, was it Ken LaCourt who was in charge of Fox yeah. News? Did yeah, you? Ken LaCourt. He ran .com at Fox. Okay. 
Okay, so this happened, this, this Islam video, the Quran challenge, I called it, and that got a couple hundred thousand plays and I started getting a lot of death threats. And I spoke with Ken and he said, yeah, well, if you die, have someone call me. It's a story, click. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, that was my introduction to the industry. Then I did right. this stuff with PJTV. And um, this was like an online, you know, like all these conservative TV, they call it TV, even though it's actually not on TV. And I was the first person to do like hidden camera stuff before James O'Keefe, even though I was a comedian, I went to Canada, went through the socialized healthcare system. That took me to Fox News. And you know what happened with Fox News? First of all, my advocate there was Suzanne Scott. All I ever knew was yeah. that Roger Ailes didn't find me funny. Uh, and, and, but I also found out that he hated, he thought Norm Macdonald was like the most unfunny person on earth. So I took it kind of as a badge of honor, but, uh, mm -hmm. Suzanne Scott and, and Bill Shine were always very nice with me. And Suzanne Scott was really more of my advocate. So I went in there and I did a bunch of shows and, um, you know, there was a period of time where they talked about, uh, producing a show and, but they told me what I wanted to do, what we're doing now would never work. It would never work that conservatives didn't really like that kind of show. The closest they could come to would be Red Eye, which was really political commentary with a couple of people who might be a little snippy. And uh, then it just got to a point where uh, I didn't really think there was much of a future. And I was depressed. I was really depressed because I was at Fox News and they kind of, I had a little bit of, I wasn't, I wasn't Megyn Kelly, right? I was at the, I was at the bottom of the, uh, the totem pole there. So they were often giving me contracts that were very short. And I was always under this cloud of renewal and they didn't really know what they wanted to do with me. And that's not their fault. They knew that they didn't really want any other networks to have me because CNN was calling MSNBC. And then finally I just said, you know what? I just don't really think this is the place for me. And we, we parted ways. And afterwards it became more of a scandal because of the way that the media uh, handles it. But I do remember when I met you, I do remember the first time I did your show, it was the BP oil spill and Kevin Costner had uh, the patent, remember on some kind of technology to clean up yes. the oil. And uh, I, I remember I was very nervous because I, I had a, I had a very, uh, I had a big, I had a big crush. I was not married at the time. I can say this. And uh, there's, there are people who are, there are people who are pretty and then there are people because you also, uh, you radiate, uh, uh, you're very kind. It's like looking into the sun, which you can't do for too long. So I had to look away. Uh, <laughs> and then I remember afterwards, I introduced you to a friend of mine who will remain nameless, but Hollywood uh, A-lister by email. But can I say one thing? And I don't want to, hmm. I don't want to, you did break my heart after that. And let me tell you why. Mm -mm. Okay. After I left Fox News, I did this thing that went viral where I went to Islam, Muslim bakeries. And I'd done your show, I think maybe twice. And uh, I, Muslim bakeries, where I asked them to bake a gay wedding cake. It was a funny thing. They all said no. And then you talked about your show and you said some YouTube producer. Uh, and I was like, Megan knows who I am. And so I, I, I always wondered why that happened. Because I always thought we were, we were, you know, we always had a good rapport. Honestly, I, I'll tell you the truth. I, I probably just didn't remember, just didn't make the connection. I, I don't have a very good memory for faces and names. My assistant, Abigail's sitting right next to me right now. She's shaking her head. No, no. She has to deal with this all the time. And I worry about it because people think it's because, no, I've become this public figure and I'm just too fancy and important to remember the little people. And it's not that at all. I've always had this deficiency. I'm not good at remembering faces and names. There are things I am good at, and that's a real deficiency. I've had people, Stephen, they'll stop me on the street, be like, hey, Megan, how you doing? I'm like, oh, good, good. And they'll be like chatting to me, and it'll occur to me five minutes into the conversation that they actually know me. They don't just know of me. They know me. And I'm like, Oh my God, how do I know them? Like, and it'll, I'll, I'll try to back my way into it. And then they'll be like, yeah, you know, when I was on your show that time and I'll be like, oh, and they'll be like, and then the next time I'm like, yeah, how many times were you on? They'll be like five times. I'm like, oh shit. Like I, it's embarrassing. It is, it, it's like a, it's, it's like an, a mental handicap. 
I was like a 22 year old kid, and you know, I'm sitting there at this point. You know, I was single, thinking, uh, well, you know, I found out you were married. I'm thinking, I mean, I got a shot, and uh, you know, so to me, it meant uh, a whole lot more. And then, yeah, I think you just. But I remember always wondering about that because what did happen, and you know, this with Fox News, I didn't want to renew the, the contract at that point. Let them know, and then it was kind of a well, you, you don't leave Fox News, now you're persona non, non grata. Um, and there are some people who I'm still friends with there, but it was like, you know, you don't quit, we fire you. And I don't know legally what I can talk about with the contract, but I think you can confirm that there's a little bit of that mentality. And that was a rude awakening. And it surprised me because, you know, Megan, I was at a point in my life where, think about it, I was a comedian from Canada. We didn't get Fox News. We had a pirate radio from, from Plattsburgh, New York, where occasionally we could get like maybe Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity. Um, and I just knew this was the big show. I knew everyone saying, oh, you're on Fox News. You know, and I had a segment every single Sunday where I was debating Alicia Menendez. I was probably appearing four times a week and then a couple times in their online thing, which I don't, I don't really, it didn't pan out. They changed it to Fox Nation. But I'm going, okay, what I want to do, I can't do here. And I'm stepping away from really the only platform that everyone wants to get to if they're a conservative to try a show that they've already told me will never work. And uh, it was it was it was a dark period. I just you know I, I didn't necessarily know how I was going to do it, but I knew that what I wanted to do, I I couldn't do there. And so uh, I'm really sincerely grateful that this show, whatever it is, in the audience, whatever it is that we have, that they actually care. I just went out and said, you know what, I would like a show like this, and and I did it. Right, you created it. Well, I mean, you know, as my, my sister-in-law, Diane, who's very spiritual, she would call that, and, and people have heard that, but she would say you manifested it, you know, whether you were consciously doing it or not, at some level, you were making it happen, you were manifesting it. Wait, I want to say just a couple of things. Number one, I am sorry that I didn't remember you. Um, I'm I'm really not good at that, but I'm sorry. So no, absolutely no personal offense intended there. No, Number I appreciate it. I just was wondering why, but yeah, uh, no, but I, I feel was... bad. I I genuinely feel bad. I hate the fact that this thing I have would ever make somebody feel like I that they they didn't matter to me. It's I wish I could do something about it. Was there like a pill you could take that would help you? I actually am one of those people who I'm always googling like, have they come out with it yet? The thing that helps your memory. I have a really good memory for certain things like facts. I can remember. I can remember news stories. I can remember the details. I can remember somebody who contradicts themselves. But this one lane, and I wonder whether any of the listeners have this same thing, you know, like, you know how like some people are really good at directions and some people aren't. Some people are good at foreign languages and some people aren't. And some people are great with faces and names and and aren't. Anyway, okay, so that's number one. Number two, on you leaving Fox News, I too have a ton of friends who are still there and, you know, some of my best friends in the world are there. But I do think that there is an element, and I say this respectfully, there's an element of cult-like nature to it because you're either in or you're out. You're in or you're out. And once you're out, it is like the omerta principle, you know, like dead. And to me, that's like, I, and I, I had a bumpy exit in a way. I mean, I chose to leave, of course, but because of the whole right. Roger Rails thing, and that upset a lot of people who loved Roger and did not like the fact that I didn't support him. But I did, once I had a couple of years out of the organization, realize it is, it does sort of move as one group and you're either in that group or you're not. And it took right. me a couple of years to sort of emerge standing up straight and tall and back to myself after leaving and remember like, oh, wait, you know, I don't have to go along with certain things and I can think for myself and I don't have to, you know, do things exactly the way Roger Rails wanted me to do them. I can just do them the way, you know, it's like took a right. while. So I, I can validate the feelings you may have been having of like other otherizing. And I didn't change the way that I was while I was there. But to, to go back to what you mentioned about names and faces, you know, the two aren't necessarily one and the same because I am horrible with names, but I never forget a face or a voice. 
it, it borders on perhaps some kind of autism, uh, which mm-hmm. my wife often says, she's like, I think you're autistic. I'm like, why? Just because I, just because I like a weighted blanket. Come on. But I do like a weighted blanket. Uh, <laughs> that sounds but great. She, yeah, her weighted blankets are fantastic. I have them on all my beds. I'm like, how did I not know about this before? I used to, when I was a kid, I would put extra blankets on my bed because I wanted more weight. And then at the very last second, I'd fan my terry cloth robe over it and go, okay, that's that's enough. <laughs> terry cloth. Wait, I didn't actually know about the weighted blanket. I'm actually, I confess I'm just learning about the weighted blanket right now. It's a thing. You can get it for any bed. Because you're not retarded like me where I do wear, where I use the weighted blankets, but I've only found you it out. You can't say retarded. Well, I just did. You're not going to edit this out, are you? Like Dan Crenshaw no. editing out my favorite jokes ever in his podcast. I can't believe what I can't believe he did it. He drove me. Well, nuts. we will not be editing you out. But can I, just as a quick aside, I remember interviewing Bernie Goldberg one time on the on Fox News, and he used the term midget, and I said, "You can't say midget. This is live in the air." And he goes, "Midget, midget, midget, midget." I'm like, oh. right? <laughs> there was no editing in live TV. No, well, okay. Well, thank you. I'm glad you won't. Edit. Yeah, no, I, I can. I, I don't understand why that is actually an offensive word because it comes from the, the, the you know, Latin. It comes from the Romance. All the Romance languages come from. Everything Latin is offensive. That's why. Well, retard means late. It actually means slow to arrive. Um, mm. And you know, my wife and I have actually volunteered with special needs people. It's a big reason why we're very pro-life. So it's just when people tell us like you can't say it, I'm like I have watched mentally retarded people call other people retarded. Like, this is something I, but you guys wouldn't know because you don't hang around. And they're not offended if you say someone mentally handicapped, which is now offensive as well, specially abled. Anyway, that's beside the point. Do you want to hear the joke that was Dan Crenshaw's podcast? That guy? Yeah. That's that son of a gun. He was talking about uh, mirroring, or he was talking about reflecting a psychological term where about the left, Mm -hmm. I think he said they're reflecting what the right does. And this was edited out. So now I want the world to hear it because it wasn't a joke that I wrote. It was just something I said as an aside, and we had to pause the whole thing. He said, you know, so Democrats are doing this, they're reflecting. I said, yeah, I believe it's a psychological term. You know, when I did um, social studies, they call it mirroring, where you're actually mirroring people's emotions, and sometimes you're matching their intensity. I said, I, I actually, as a boss, I govern by projection. And I just yell at everyone for having a small penis. He cut that out of his show. <laughs> like someone's going to be a about me joking that I have a small wiener for crying out. Oh, come on. That doesn't, I'm surprised at that. I would have thought, I mean, he's from Houston, right? Let go with it. I would have thought Dan Crenshaw would have been like a Texas humor. They can take anything. But uh, the face thing, I never forget a face. Uh, Just yesterday, we were watching something, my wife and I, I can't remember, I can't remember the name of the show, but I was watching, I said, oh, that's the guy. I said, that guy, that guy, that guy. And he's probably about 25 years older. I said, that's the guy from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Hillary goes, the guy with the mustache? I go, no, you're thinking about Martin Mull. It was a guy who had a guest role in one episode on Sabrina the Teenage Witch as a teacher. And oh I can my pick it God. Out. And I can pick it out. Why? When I was at the YAF, the National YAF Conference, you know, this is where people, they all show up from every different college. It distracts me because I look out into the crowd and I can see faces and I can remember exactly what, where I was when I met them, what they were wearing, oh my. What they were, who was with me, but I can never remember a name. It's, it really but is a that's weird a thing. gift. That's a gift. You're halfway home. I would kill to be able to have that. I, I interviewed Mary Lou Hemmer. Hemmer, yeah. Henner, Henner, Henner um, from Taxi. And she's got that thing. They featured her on 60 Minutes a few years ago. She's got that thing. They they, they found like, I don't know if it's if it's only like six people in the United States who have it. Um, she, You can say, Mary Lou, uh, November 2nd, 1978. And she can tell you what she was wearing that day, what the temperature was, what time the sunset, everything about the day. She's got an, a, a photographic memory for every detail of her life on any given day. And I emerged from my interview with her and from the 60 Minutes piece thinking that is much more of a curse than it is a gift. 
That's also, if it's just her life, that's a narcissist. <laughs> like, I know everything about me. Really? How about one other person? I don't have the space. What am I? What, what am I, retired? I don't remember See, my I stuff. Need, I need a friend like that in my life. Because since my memory for those details is so poor, I'll be talking to somebody who's got this thing. Like, not not like Mary Lou, but who's really good at remembering things. And um, I'll be like, they'll be telling me a story about, you know, when we were in high school. And I'll be like, and then what I do? And then what? Like, I, it's like hearing the story for the first time. I'm worried. I think it, I might have early Alzheimer's. I don't know what it is. I, Let's not for myself. Alzheimer's because our potential president could have it. And it's no laughing matter. <laughs> Let's just hope he's still alive so we can find out. I mean, it's unclear. Joe, if Joe Biden actually, and I don't think he's going to become president, but if he does, he's definitely not living through the first term. I mean, it was 70 something percent of Democrats didn't believe he would make it through his first term. That is that is a vote of no confidence, madam, if I've ever heard one. Why? Because because they think he's going to pass or because they think Kamala Harris is going to take him out. I've heard that, too. <laughs> I, I, I know it was I think it was 72 or 78 percent of Democrats that they didn't think he would serve his entire first term. So, yeah, they either think that he could, you know, I don't know, maybe someone will turn on a microwave and he'll piss his pants, forget who he was for a second with the plate and his head that acts up. Or maybe they think Kamala Harris will take him out. I didn't see that subset of the polling questions, but a majority mm -hmm. of Democrats don't believe he'll make it through his first term. And I tend to. Agree. I mean, these are these are. Listen, obviously. These are the conversations people are having. They're worried about his health and one way or the other. And they, they wonder whether this is all a set up by the Democrats to get her in to the presidential seat as soon as possible, because, you know, he does seem, as uh, Crystal Ball said the other day, not at the apex of his uh, authority or uh, what was the second word? Power. Or, I don't know. Mental acuity. He's a demented uh, old circus monkey. Let's go with that. I think that's an apt description. Okay. All right. Let me ask you about your approach to these subjects. Because when I see your YouTube show, which has got over 4 million followers, it's huge. That's just on any given day, never mind, you know, election. You really have no third rails. I mean, you mentioned some of them. Like, I, I like to think I don't have as many, I guess, as the average person. But man, you make me look like an uptight Pollyanna. I, I can't believe you've been doing the Prophet Muhammad stuff. I mean, I will tell you, that scares yeah. me. I support your right to do it. And I, I secretly admire your willingness because it is free speech. You know, we were told by sort of radical Islam that if you even talk about Prophet Muhammad, God forbid, depict Prophet Muhammad, you you could be killed. And you not only did the skit you just talked about, but I saw one where you were pretending to be Bob Ross, the painter, and you were painting the Prophet Muhammad. And it was very, it was not, it was not a laudatory presentation. And I thought, oh my God, this guy, he's fearless. I mean, can, may I ask you whether, given what we saw at Charlie Hebdo, you know, the magazine in France that, that drew, that published pictures, cartoonish pictures of the Prophet Muhammad. And then he was, and then, and then they were killed. 12 of them were killed. Another 11 were shot uh, back in 2015. Does it give you any pause? Are you afraid at all? No, no. Listen, I am not fearless. Anyone here will tell you that I'm neurotic and I'm very, very fearful. Uh, I was bullied as a kid. Uh, I get so nervous before every single show that I do here in the studio and every single live show. There's always a moment right before where the lights go on. and I go, why am I doing this? And I'm, I'm just this far. You can't see, but I'm putting my finger, my thumb together. I'm just this close to walking off. And I go, why do I do this? I am a recluse. This is actually, I think the only interview that I've done outside of my show for gosh. And so I can't, I can't remember when outside of like Ben Shapiro or good friends when they call me up, I'm a private person. I don't like fame, uh, but I do feel compelled to, uh, at least be authentic and, and speak truth. And listen, um, if someone says that you can't paint Muhammad, yeah, I can. 
Yeah, I can. And I'm not just like I'm not going to be intimidated into voting for your candidate because you're burning down our cities. That does not happen. You don't change my mind at gunpoint. And that's why we do the change my minds. When people call me a Nazi because I have a change my mind, you know, that we do a video series and I say Donald Trump's not a racist, change my mind and I'm a Nazi. But someone wants to actually support a religion that will behead me for simply painting a prophet. And by the way, one thing, too, people need to understand, the show is a PG-13. Okay, and that's one thing too. When I was doing stand-up comedy, one of the biggest arguments I'd ever gotten into uh, at Fox News was with Amy Schumer because I wrote a column on abstinence, and she was furious because she thought it was judgmental. And I was saying that's more taboo. Me talking about not having sex until I'm married—that offends people. Comedians can do anything; they can talk about any depraved sex acts, and you know, like Amy. Let's take Amy Schumer for an example, talking about blowing guys at truck stops, all this stuff. If I go, if I, and then all of a sudden I paint Muhammad. And that's more offensive. Listen, there's nothing vulgar about it. It's just that we are told we can't do it. And I don't do it to be a provocateur. I did it because for people who haven't watched it, the sketch was Bob Ross doing it as an homage to the beautiful religion that is Islam, blissfully unaware that he was committing blasphemy and my producer was watching it horrified. That's the joke. It was funny. It's still funny, and I don't apologize for it, but of course, I'm always scared when I make those decisions. I'm not only on the, I'm not only on the ISIS kill list, I'm on like the top 25, the frequent flyer list. I'm the, I'm the Delta Platinum of ISIS kill. And you know what? Thank God I live in America. If I were in Canada, I'd be concerned because I could be jailed, and I have a friend right now who is before Human Rights Tribunal for a joke in Canada. So to me, this is the only place in the world where freedom of speech actually exists. People go, what do you mean? And I say, I mean just that. It's the only place in the world where we have freedom of speech. It's absolute and it's enshrined in our constitution. And if that means that I have to paint a few profits, so be it. Now, it scares me. I, I'm friends with Ayan Hirsi Ali. And, you know, she was helping make the, this Dutch filmmaker make a film about Islam that was not complimentary. And he, Theo van Gogh, and he wound up with a fatwa, you know, like an order for his death, uh, stabbed into his chest with a knife and was killed and she she's she's had a fatwa against her now for being critical of islam and walks around with security all the time it is scary i mean that's next level scary it's one thing to like you know thumb your nose is a cancel culture but it is a free speech principle i mean it isn't i would say something i would do i just don't want to mess with people's religions in general but you're a comedian and comedians they get they get paid to think there's no sacred cows Back to Stephen in one second. But first, Black Rifle Coffee Company CEO and founder Evan Hafer started over. After 20 years in the U.S. Army as an infantryman, special forces soldier, and CIA contractor. See, Evan founded Black Rifle Coffee Company in 2014, along with his buddy, Army Ranger Matt Best, as the combination of two passions, developing premium fresh roasted coffee and honoring and supporting those who serve on the front lines. Black Rifle Coffee Company has donated over 45,000 pounds of coffee or over 1 million cups of coffee to soldiers deployed overseas and law enforcement officers, wildland firefighters on the West Coast, and so on. For every coffee purchase you make throughout the month of November, Black Rifle Coffee will send a bag of our limited edition holiday roast to a service member currently deployed overseas. Yay, love that. To be delivered by Christmas morning. Oh, this is great. The coffee is great. This is a good opportunity to help yourself and someone else. Being founded and operated by veterans, the team at BRCC knows what a quality cup of coffee means to active duty troops spending the holidays away. So help them out and help yourself out. If you want to support the cause, go to blackriflecoffee.com slash MK today and check out the freshest coffee in America. The team has spent thousands of hours tasting, sourcing and perfecting coffee from all over the world 
blackriflecoffee.com slash MK gets you 20% off coffee, apparel, and gear, as well as 20% off your first month of the coffee club. I love the change my mind thing. So you go on college campuses, and I like the name of it. It just changed my mind. It's not like, screw you, you're, you're stupid. It's like, I believe this changed my mind. And they do. They, I mean, they don't change your mind, but they do come over to you and they'll talk to you. And here's we, we pulled one because you did one uh, not too long ago on Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, mm-hmm. what campus was it on? Do you know which one you did that on? I, uh, I think that was ECU, I believe. I actually like this girl. She was kind of sweet. She came over. She wanted to argue with, with you about how Amy Coney Barrett should not get a hearing and that they, we should wait until post vote. And we have the uh, we have the the clip. Listen. So there's a long-standing precedent. As a matter of fact, it would be a violation of American precedent and decorum to not confirm them. So I guess what what, are, what would you be? And I've heard this quite a bit, I just but I don't. Know. I mean, she goes against like so much of what of so much of the progress that we've made from the Supreme Court justice that she's going to be replacing. Mm-hmm. That sits okay with you? Do you care about women's rights? And do I care about women's rights? Of yes. course I do. Okay. But what does that have to do with confirming Amy Coney Barrett? I don't think that she's the best fit to begin with. So is that the litmus because test for why complete, we should not confirm a justice? Opposite. No, it's the election year, as I first said. But, but okay, but the election but, year, but, but then but I went back to the election. If you want to go deeper, then yeah, it's also that she's... Okay, but you said the election year. Have we addressed the election year that there's 29 yeah, times still, precedent? So this is your, so you don't care. like it, you don't feel good about it? No, I okay. told you that it was because of an election year. Mm-hmm. Not, like this this has been this year has been a mess for so many reasons and I don't know why we couldn't just wait a little bit longer to make that decision when someone's elected. I guess the question becomes again you would have to justify you'd have to rationalize that reason considering that it goes against precedent waiting to nominate. That's not what we do. That's not what Obama did. That's not what's happened 29 times. You nominate. You're the president. That's what you do. And if you're the Senate you confirm or you reject. That's what you do. Okay. So, so I don't understand the the reasoning. I guess is that what, is a good point. I'm okay. thinking. <laughs> but no, no, I appreciate it. I just I, I've heard your you argument. Made a good point. I know. I'm thinking. I like her. I mean, you had your facts, and that sadly she did not, <laughs> and was kind of all over the board. You know, when you hit her with a fact, she was like, "Well, this is just how I feel. Well, I just don't want it," which isn't an argument. But I think it's to her benefit to be shorn up, right? To be pressed on her points so she can either shore them up or abandon them, which she should because you had her. Um, but it's pretty fearless of you to just go right into the belly of the beast with people who, I mean, you're not that old yourself. Like you should, be, by all rights and purposes, you should be feeling like they feel, right? Because you're a kid. You're so young. But you're their age. And I think they listen to you. And you just are there armed with your fact, 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 fact. Has it ever, has it ever changed your mind? Uh, changed my mind? No, I've changed a lot. And I've changed a lot of other people's minds. Um, I should, I should clarify. Hers, too, in, hers included. Yeah, you know, it happens quite a bit. We had one woman, uh, or young lady who was uh, pro-abortion and told me uh, that she had had an abortion, why she thought it was right. She talked about it and she, why she didn't think it was wrong. And then later she talked about how she was uh, a Christian. She believed in God. And I ended up with saying, and uh, listen, I understand why you feel that way and how difficult it must have been. Um, but I also will tell you uh, with confidence that you're going to see your baby's face in heaven one day. She came back on the show a week later and said that she entirely changed her opinion and she's become a pro-life activist. Uh, these conversations, wow. we've also done them on the street. We've also had professors come up just recently when we did the one about uh, uh, Charlottesville, the very fine people. There was a professor from Brookhaven, a professor of political science, who actually didn't know Donald Trump's tax policy. So the whole idea of change my mind is it's not a debate. 
you know, I've had Naomi Wolf on the show. And we've had some pretty big name leftist intellectuals. So it becomes harder and harder to get them to uh, actually come on the show for a debate. And I'm very clear, like, hey, listen, I have an opposing point of view. Change my mind really, uh, really was sort of spawned in, I hate to say this, but the anti-Fox News, where my friend and I were sitting going, you know what, why? we were just talking about politics. And I said, why can't this be there? Why can't this be on air? Oh, because you have commercial breaks and people have to get in, they have to score points, right? And they try and hit a gotcha. And then we go to, we go to a, you know, a, a reverse mortgage with Tom Selleck. It's not his first rodeo. And I just said, what if we just let people talk? And there's also, these are also very different conversations when you're having people who aren't political pundits uh, rationalize their position. These are not people who are coming in to make sure that they don't lose, so that they still have a contributorship status or they still have some kind of senior fellow status at a think tank. So a criticism that I have heard people say is, well, why do you go to college campuses? Well, half of them have not been on college campuses. They've been randomly in the street. We've done them with professors. And that's very different from the actual formal debates we've hosted on our show. Um, And I would love to do more uh, debates, actually. We've tried to do a Change My Mind Professor edition or host formal debates on college campuses, and no professors will do it. No professors really? will do it. Yeah, they won't Come do it. Come on. No, yeah, we've said, now, obviously, I'm not going to debate a professor who's, for example, like a geologist on, uh, I'll, I'll go in and go, I don't know, sedimentary, igneous? No, but <laughs> social studies professor or, or a, a political science professor where we would like to do it. And yeah, we haven't Gender had any Gender studies, that'd be Gender studies. Then send anyone you want. Just don't send anybody you want back. That's what I, I'll, I will do it with no <laughs> tomorrow on the stage because I think his ideas are silly and I wouldn't expect to, to, to score points or win. But change my mind is very different. It is more so designed to be a tool for people in the real world uh, to be able to have these conversations with people at a dinner table, at a park, maybe at a business function. And sometimes, you know, they don't always go well. They get heated. We have people come in and they, you know, whip stuff at us or they break the table. But for the most part, they're, 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 they're pretty productive. And so I hope people recognize that it's by design that it's different. And um, now how, But how do you get over the, uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how to put this, but sort of the instinct to claim offense, to claim that they've been victimized by you, you know, when you go to these third rail places, it's it is whether intended to be or not, it is provocative. And I I know you got some of that blowback when you did. Um, there there's no such thing as rape culture, and and right. some of the women and even some of the guys who came over were like, this is this is bull. I know people have been raped, or a woman said I have been raped, and I don't, right. and I have several friends who have been. Uh, in those moments, are you feeling like mm, I'm uncomfortable, or what is that? How does that feel? No, no, you know why? Because um. I'm not in the business of ascribing intent, so I take their arguments at face value. And I will tell you, though, from from my point of view, it comes from a place of empathy. And when someone says I've been raped, I'll say, "Oh my gosh, I can't. That's that's horrible. I, that's that's horrible. I can't believe that happened to you." And I want to talk with them and I want to console them, but that doesn't mean that we have a rape culture here in the United States. And so that's where it comes from. I don't feel guilty if I'm not going out there to insult people when I say rape culture in the United States is a myth. I mean, rape culture is a myth. And if you think I'm wrong, you are free to change my mind. When I say that Donald Trump is the best president of the modern American era, I mean it. When I say that uh, Donald Trump isn't racist, or when I say uh, um, uh, I can't, uh, the Second Amendment, I'm pro. One of them is just I'm pro Second Amendment. Or I'm pro life. I mean it. And it's not it's not me going out there to try and just piss you off. Um, you, you're welcome to change my mind. And, and and the idea is it forces we don't learn the Socratic method. Oh no, 
Now that's considered insensitive. They're actually objecting to that in some universities. Now that's what we used in law school. I mean, they, they walk you down the path of your own logic until you slam, you know, head first into the brick wall of logic and realize you've failed. And then like a mouse in a, in a maze, you have to back up and try another lane. And then finally, at the end, you get the cheese if you're smart enough to figure it out. But that's how you learn logical reasoning. It's insane to me that they're trying to get rid of the Socratic method because the snowflakes it makes them feel bad when they hit the wall. <laughs> to try harder. I, you know, I know. We'll upload one. Um, just, you know, I did this video where I was asking people about the Charlottesville, find people on both sides. And none of them had heard that Donald Trump condemned neo-Nazis and white supremacists. When I showed them that clip, they said, well, it still doesn't change my mind. But there was a professor there who was waiting when I was interviewing people on the street. And this is getting harder to do, Megan, probably like you've experienced this because people recognize me. You know, I don't quite have the financial cushion that you do or the ability to have security. Like, what am I going to do? Hide behind my basketball hoop and my above ground pool. But I go out there, I have a bulletproof vest a lot of the time and I'm recognized oh, wow. a lot. So it's hard for me to do this. Uh, but there was a professor who was waiting. So he'd watch me interview other people. I think it was uh, my audio guy here, audio, was it Brookhaven, something like that, some school? It was, a, it was a community college in Texas, a well-regarded community college, and he was a professor of politics. So he'd been waiting, watching me interview other people. And I really didn't want to interview him because I wasn't looking to get into an argument. I was looking to see if people had actually uh, heard the entire context of the Donald Trump clip. But I said, okay, come on up, professor of politics. And he said, I think that Donald Trump is bad uh, in everything that he's done. I said, really? What bothers you most about Donald Trump? This is a professor in politics. He goes, well, he, uh, you know, he hasn't really helped the Kurds there in Turkey. I said, oh, okay. So what would you like him to do? Well, he needs to support them more. I said, okay, I understand that. That's a valid position to hold. So were you, um, I guess you were supportive of George W. Bush in Iraq? No. He's a professor of politics now. I said, wasn't there something about like biochemical gassing or the Kurds in Saddam Hussein? He goes, yeah, but I wouldn't, you know, that we shouldn't have been there to destabilize it. I said, okay, so you were against doing anything there and helping the Kurds, but today you think that we should. He said, yeah. I said, okay, well, listen, that's a position you can hold. I don't know that I necessarily agree with you. Then I said, what about uh, tax policy? He didn't know about tax policy. Again, this is a guy who's a professor of politics. He said, you know, I don't think he's done a damn thing for the middle class. I said, what about the fact that the average household wage has gone up? Lowest number that you'll hear cited, 4000 up to $5,000 in the three and a half years. He said, well, I didn't know that. I said that the average American pays $1,600 to $1,800 less in taxes. He said, well, I didn't know that. And I said, okay, let's assume that what I'm telling you right now and it's 3.5% unemployment, lowest unemployment of black Americans ever. I said, let's assume that everything right now I'm telling you is true, that I'm not lying. What would you say to that? And he goes, well, well, those would be some good points. And I don't know what happened when he went home. And I don't know how he moderates debates in his political science class with his students, but that's scary. And these are the wow. people who are teaching our kids. And, yeah, I, and I'm, no I I'm, I'm not that, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I, 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 this comes from a place of fear. I over-prepare always because I, I assume I'm going to be caught flat-footed. I assume that the next guy knows more than I do. It's like, you know, thinking of an argument as a, as a tree and you have this trunk, you know, and this is a basic argument and that's where like, ah, not my president, right? That's where people have, and you go, okay, let's break off from that and let's see the p potential counter arguments and how is there, is there a way that I can maybe lead somebody down this branch? And then you realize that there are professors in this country who are just a stump. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and lawmakers, too. That's one of the scarier things, I think. I mean, it's bad enough to have them in academia. But I think for a long time, people revered U.S. senator. You know, you got to have your stuff together to be a U.S. senator. And then you find out, oh, my God, so wrong, so wrong. And now having spent all these years in news, having met so many lawmakers, some are great. Some are dumb as a rock, box of rocks, the boxies everywhere. Congressional boxy. 
And it, it scares me. It, and it really it's what really got me thinking several years ago about how these guys are not the answer. They, 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 they are not the path forward. Every once in a while, you get somebody who's really smart or at least a deep thinker, somebody who really wants to problem solve. Like Rand Paul is somebody who I think is smart and really thinks about issues and tries to come up with innovative solutions. You may, he may or may not be your cup of tea, but you can't say he's not a thinker. So this is a good example. I make fun of Rand Paul a lot, but he's been on the show a lot. He's, he's, so in the election, uh, the 2016, the primaries, um, I just called him toilet brush head because I find his head looks like a toilet brush, you know, those white toilet mm. brushes. And he came and, back. Uh, he come, it's a, it's a re- recurring relationship. All the time. I just try and be straightforward with it. You know, I sent him with Ted Cruz. I made fun of Ted Cruz. John Kasich probably will never be in the show. I've been brutal with him. But no, I, oh. I appreciate Rand Paul. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think he's one of the good ones. I think he's a guy who can't be bought or sold. And uh, no. we don't have to this to, to, to an hour. This is, we're having a, a good time here. And I know I've been interrupting you. I apologize with my mansplaining, but uh, I'm always interested no, as you. Stop it. Hey, can I ask you a Good, question? Good, because I don't, I don't want to let you go. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think. And you, you're the lawyer, so you tell me if you get into legal hot water. Do you remember at Fox News, so particularly it was Fox and Friends in the Morning, there was an Israeli war, gay wardrobe guy. Do you know oh, who wow. I'm talking about? Do not. I only knew one wardrobe woman. Her name was Gwen Martyr, and she ran the whole show, like the whole wardrobe department. Okay, well, then never mind. Never mind. I was going to say I was sexually harassed. I didn't mind it. What? What happened? I said, don't grab my ass anymore. That was it. But I just wondered if you knew it. But I was just saying, like, it, it happened. A, like, guys get sexually harassed, too. It happens all the time. Uh, but of course was, they do. I was, he kind of looked like the uh, lead singer from Simple Plan. He was a nice guy, though, too. I actually was flattered. And we actually, uh, we talked about the IDF and Krav Maga and stuff. But he actually. But he like grabbed he gra- your ass? Yeah. Like, got a good handful? My- yeah. Well, listen, if anyone's seen my ass, it's not hard to grab a handful. I have a huge ass. It's ridiculous. It's like I, it's, I constantly look like a like a catcher in the ready position, only that's me standing upright. And, hey, people uh, are paying just, big money for that these days. You should be honored. You should be proud oh, of it. I, no, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I, I find it disgusting when women are actually just working their ass at the gym. I just know, like now they've created these isolation machines so that people can just have disproportionately large butts. And uh, that's <laughs> silly mine develops naturally well let me tell you something yeah if you if you want to work on that let me tell you i went to see my dermatologist i get like the full body mole check once a year you know and they take pictures of all the moles on your body because i'm irish so you know i, I don't i have moly skin and um the dermatologist actually said to me because he's one of those cosmetic dermatologists so he can do everything he actually said to me you know we have this machine that we can connect to your butt and it, it like vigorously moves your butt cheeks and it makes them hard it's like it gives it's like the equivalent of like a month long of like butt squeezes and butt lifts without doing any of the exercise you can put them on your abs you can put them on your butt i'm like what are you trying to say doc huh could you just take a picture of the mole i'm like let's move along did he say and the thing about this machine is it's my hands I would imagine. That wouldn't surprise me if he did that. That just sounds like the old uh, the old fitness belt. Remember they used to do like you'd stand it's, and go It's over. like that. I saw it. I have to tell you, it's tempting. Uh, just a funny epilogue of that story. When, after they take the pictures of the moles, they make like a photo album for you of all your moles so that you can keep an eye on them year to year. And I, I'm like, okay, I guess this is what I have to do. Just make sure I don't get skin cancer. So what I didn't remember is that, um, again, my assistant, Abby, she opens all my mail. <laughs> So it was kind of, I think I harassed her. I think I sent her naked pictures of myself. I was basically sexted by a sister. There's a place in Dallas called Cooper Clinic. The guy who uh, actually, I think, 
invented, I guess, the term aerobic exercise. And uh, I do a full body skin. My dad had skin cancer. Um, and that was actually the only, the closest I came to like crying on air because I found out right before going on air. Um, my father uh, had melanoma on his temple. Um, which is a really, really bad place to get it. And I remember I got called and I had walked out of the studio and we were starting really soon. And uh, he said, hey, can you uh, grab a couple minutes? And my mom and him were on the phone. He said, just so you know, I, uh, I have uh, skin cancer and it's okay. I'm going to go in to get it removed. And so then I thought, oh, okay, it's not a big deal. And then he sent a follow-up text and it was melanoma and it was on his temple and it had already spread. And uh, it was right about before we go to live and I just started, I, I cried like a little bitch. And then uh, I kind of, uh, you know, okay, pick it up and do the show. And um, what we did was we did uh, the cancer joke off where I, I, I joked about when we referred to my father as Kim Jong-un for about two years because they, you know, where they cut the scar and they cut off his, uh, his cancerous mole. He didn't have any hair growing there. And we had my dad select his favorite joke about cancer. So when people tell me that something's off limits, it's like, listen, I don't think cancer's funny. This is the way that we process and deal with this. Also, if we were still in Canada, my dad would probably be dead. They spotted it. And the only reason he wasn't in within uh, 12 hours to get it removed was because it was, uh, I think it was a Saturday and then Sunday they weren't performing the procedures. I've had people with stage four lung cancer, relatives, an aunt actually. I've had several relatives who had serious cancer, but I had an aunt that it, it took her several months to get diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in Canada. This is within the last five years, mind you. And then it took her another six weeks to see a doctor to find out what the treatment would be for her stage four okay. lung cancer, which of course it spread. So I, when people talk about uh, socialized healthcare in Canada, I go, well, listen, if, you're, if, you're, if your barometer there is free, okay. But if it's about living, well, I have a dad who's still alive uh, because of American healthcare. Do you want to hear what his favorite joke was? His skin, can his was skin cancer joke? I'm not sure I do, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> this is what my dad was crowdsourced and it was a, a doctor call. So it's, it's, it's a, this is an old man joke. And by the way, people, I'm not played it. This isn't my joke. It's my dad selected this. Uh, guy goes into the doctor and the doctor says, um, I have some really bad news for you. He says, okay, hit me with it, doc. He says, okay, um, well, you have cancer first off. He says, oh boy. He says, and you have Alzheimer's. The guy pauses intensity and he thinks for a second. He goes, well, guess it could be worse. At least I don't have cancer. <laughs> <laughs> my dad picked that right after surgery that's how i deal with tragedy in the family so if people that's want to judge me, don't tell me what's off limits we called no, Jong-un because he had cancer I, in his temple left his ass i up. believe in the use of humor to get yourself through tough times and i hate the crackdown one of the things that's so awful about cancel culture is it's crackdown on comedy by the way before we move off of socialized medicine and how it can be really dangerous i hope you're listening canadian debbie we don't have those problems here in the United States, Canadian Debbie. I would get you great health care if you just move here. I would make sure your whole family were covered. Okay. But anyway, um, I can't stand it. You go to like the comedy cellar here in New York and it's like, I try to think of the cleaned up version of these guys' routines and I I, I want to cry in my soup. It's like, it, I don't get how we've gotten to this place where everything has to be offensive. You can't joke about and You can't make it as a comedian anymore. And even the ones who are paid to, to you know, entertain us on, on late night television, uh, they don't even want to try to make us laugh. They just want to go political. I mean, all they want to do is sort of, you know, politics in our face. I just feel like what we're doing to each other is insane. It, the people who are supposed to be funny are lecturing us. And the people who are supposed to be laughing are lecturing us. And the normal people are sitting there saying, am I the crazy one? Maybe, maybe I am just offensive in everything I do. 
No, I don't think that you're the crazy one. And, and you know, there's a difference between being vulgar, so you can find vulgarity everywhere. You know, you can have Stephen Colbert calling uh, our, our president uh, president's mouth Putin's cock holster, right? But mm-hmm. where is he making any jokes about Joe Biden? For example, go, going back to Justin Trudeau, we did a silly little sketch. Uh, people got really mad where I was as Justin Trudeau. And by the way, my Justin Trudeau costume it's literally just a giant vagina costume. That's all it is. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. It's a suit and then a vagina costume with a Canadian flag pin. It's an ongoing character. Uh, on behalf of all vaginas, I object. Yes, I, I. well, listen, I would object as well. I wouldn't want to count him amongst them, but there it is. I didn't have an act. <laughs> How else do you portray Justin Trudeau? It's a basic white guy. So we're like, well, people will know. So you're big, you know. Um, so we did this fake sketch where I was doing a, a makeup tutorial. You know, you see these things on, on YouTube all the time, but it was Justin Trudeau and he was applying activated charcoal to his face. And so by the end of it, the makeup tutorial is him inadvertently going in full blackface. And people were offended at that. Now, listen, there's nothing vulgar about that. And by the way, this is a guy who did blackface like 29 times, okay? So that is more offensive. Cock holster is not. Amy Schumer, I'm so drunk and I go doggy cell. That's not offensive. But the stuff that, but painting Muhammad as Bob Ross in something that should be rated G is more offensive. And that's why I say it's not dirty. Dirty's not risky. Dirty's not a new frontier. There are third rails, and that's what what bothers me. The third rails are opinions that you are not allowed to express. And so people are often surprised where they go, oh, I can't let my kid watch your show. I go, really? Why not? Well, you know, you do some stuff. I go, what was it? The, is it the activated charcoal, the blackface? They go, oh, that's a rough one. I go, your kid can see that. The Bob Ross, Muhammad. Now, there are some things that kids shouldn't see, but the truth is it's actually more family-friendly but it offends far more people. Amy Schumer didn't have NBC Universal Vox try to get them erased from the biggest online platform in American history. That didn't happen with Stephen Colbert because they're trying to, they're, they're pretenders. They're pretending as though they're being edgy. And really what they're just doing is they're looking for their audience of trained seals uh, to clap for what's funny. When we go and we do a show, or we, until this year, we do the Halloween Spooktacular. We do two live shows a year, right? And often they'll want me to go and speak at a podium and we'll have a rider and they'll be like, what a, a smoke machine? What do you need this for? And a laser light show because it's an actual, like it's, it's, a, it's a comedy show and it's almost a rock show. We have like music. We, we really try and make it fun, have a party on campus. Um, but we don't have someone with an applause sign. And so when people watch it live streamed, you can hear what jokes land and what jokes don't. And that's how we know it's funny. And by the way, there are people there from... Every, every ethnicity you can imagine, every walk of life, uh, every age group, and it's, it's a facade. I think that the old way of, of doing uh, this kind of programming is dead. And I grew up on David Letterman. Uh, I, I recently spoke with someone at, at Bloomberg because I was trying to promote the event in Michigan. That's the only time I've ever done press. And um, he wrote in the article that like, uh, shock, shock, like Rush Limbaugh. I specifically told him, I said, I didn't grow up with Rush Limbaugh because we didn't have him in Canada. I said, I grew up idolizing people like David Letterman. And so I always describe my show to people. Uh, everyone, everyone at Fox News was there like, oh, we need a conservative daily show. We need a conservative daily show. I said, no, 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 we don't. We just need any show that's actually entertaining from someone who happens to be conservative. My show would be most comparable to David Letterman meets like mid-era Howard Stern meets John Stossel. That's how I would mm-hmm. describe it to I like that. Those people I have grown up. I love John Stossel. His Stossel is one. Of, he's one of my favorites. I'll, I'll give you, so we know him and his wife pretty well, and they live near, not far from us in New York. And um, I'll, I'll tell you one funny story about Stossel. He, after the birth of one of my kids, he came by my desk and gave my assistant again, Abby, uh, all these bottles and like pacifiers and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's nice. You know, I, I came out. I'm like, what's this? She goes, oh, it's from Stossel. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. So I see him later. I'm like, hey, 
thanks for all the baby stuff. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're welcome. He's like, it, it was a, it's a bunch of stuff they say causes cancer, but we we don't think it does. We did a segment. I mean, take care. <laughs> like, for God's sake. He's saying to you like you were a child. Like, it's a bunch of toys that some people say cause cancer. <laughs> Even with that. <laughs> I'm going to hand you this gift back. He um and just this- he wasn't even going to tell me. He wasn't even going to tell me or tell Abby. Abby didn't know. I was like, I was going to give it to all my kids, like you know, completely unknowingly. I love the guy. Great California 45 warning that was on there. The on the, uh, the little sticker. We just recently asked him to be on the show, on the show a few times, and you know what we got? An answer. I think it was for the election stream. No. That was it. So him. That's oh oh. Can I tell you? All right. So that reminds me of another thing. You'll go over to their house for dinner. His wife is a brilliant New York City psychiatrist. She's very successful, and the two of them together are like a comedy routine because she's very open and honest about his behavior, <laughs> and he's like constantly like kind of offended. And um, we'll be sitting at their house for dinner, and you know how like when somebody comes over for dinner and you're kind of ready for the dinner to end, and you kind of try to wind it up politely, not stossel. You'll be in the middle of the dinner and he'll say, I'm going upstairs and I'm going to bed now because I'm tired. Thank you for being here. <laughs> That's it. He's gone. And now my husband, Doug, and I call it the Stossel. Like we got Stosseled. Oh my God. Like the night's over before you had, you had no warning. But can I tell you now? I love it. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. You can just be totally honest. Like I'll do it in a different way. I won't really kick people out of the house, but I'll say somebody will be like, oh, really missed you at the book club. And I'll say, oh, I, you know, I would have been there, but I didn't want to. It's very liberating. Right. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. And that's what's most, most things. Most of the time, I'd rather just either be home with my wife or alone. That's it. When people, people like if, if I had, this is what people understand. When I was sitting on the, uh, on our uh, porch, like a small uh, cottage on the lake uh, in Michigan, where we go in the summer and I was having a cigar and I was reading the book. I said, if I were a tr- the world's first trillionaire, this is what I'd be doing. And I think that's also what's, what sort of put me in this position where there's, there's really nothing anyone can first off people don't have anything on me like the whole me too thing no never i'll tell you right now never sexually harassed anyone in my life never had any kind of extramarital affair period doesn't exist people if you find nude pictures probably me when i was on the road my wife and i like to have a good time no one has any dirt on me there's nothing that anyone can offer me that i'll say well, they, oh, they sure. don't need that they don't need that they come after you for your segments on the air right that was when you got defunded we we know about this in media as admageddon when youtube slapped your hand and took away your ability to make money off of your youtube show uh by demonetizing your show basically they said all right you can stay on youtube you've gotten in trouble you can stay on youtube but you can't have ads to support you to support the show and that was in response to just so the viewers understand the listeners um you had a fight with this guy, Carlos Maza of Vox, where he said he felt harassed because you had called him some derogatory words for gays. And YouTube at first said, we don't see anything problematic. And then they bowed. But he had been he, he had been given it to you, had he not? Yeah, well, f- don't forget Mexican. They listed Mexican as, as a pejorative. That was something that was okay. listed actually in articles like and he referred to him as that quote, gay Mexican. OK, so keep in mind, no, it wasn't just Car- it, this guy who you're mentioning, Carlos Maza. He happened to host some Vox shows, uh, but we've criticized Vox. Right. And again, we're picking a we're picking a fight with someone far bigger than us. Vox, NBC Universal. That's one of the biggest media conglomerates in the world. And we would criticize their videos 
in some of them, he happened to be the one delivering it. And so there were a series of videos criticizing Vox. Uh, a lot of them involved him because it kind of made him their go-to for a while, and a lot of them not. And also, we made the same exact kinds of videos criticizing Samantha B, Trevor Noah, St- uh, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, so it's not like it was unique. And people say, oh, there's some ad hominem. Sure. Sure. Yeah, but it wasn't targeted harassing and, and, and bullying. Uh, and so even YouTube, what happened there was even YouTube had to say, Susan Wojcicki, the CEO, and this has never happened before, said, well, we looked at the content. And the reason why is because when you look at a 15-minute video, and if I happen to in an, you know, toss in an aside where I make fun of the presenter, which is what I do. I mean, I've, I think I've teased you and I've teased myself in this show, but that's not, the, that's not the context of this show. That's not the entirety of the content of this show. YouTube had to say these videos were clearly uh, transformative, where Stephen was criticizing the ideas and presenting sources you know, against Vox. And so they said, we didn't violate any policies uh, but they had to appease a social justice leftist mob. And so they just demonetized us, which was totally unprecedented. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you what, when that phone call happened, uh, when they called me, it was it, it, some people at YouTube. I've never spoken with Susan Wojcicki, uh, but some people at YouTube called and they were reading this prefab statement. And it sounded like they were about to say, and we're removing your channel. And uh, I, I thought I might be having a heart attack. The room started spinning. Um, because I'd, done, I'd already spoken with YouTube for a very long time, by the way, and knew that I was well within the bounds, what was considered uh, allowable content on YouTube. I've never tried to run afoul of that. That's never been my goal. I just want to know what the rules are. And I thought, oh, no, they're going to do this because of the mob. And uh, the room started spinning, and I started getting a shortness of breath, and I had to lay back down in the bed, and they said, so this is why we're demonetizing you. Click, and I went, oh. Great. And then I just, then I decided uh, I came here to a meeting with everyone. Everyone was really scared at the studio. And I employ like 15 people here. We have a full scale production studio. And uh, I told them, hey, listen, is this going to give, put a dent? Sure. But the bulk of our revenue comes from people who join Mug Club. You know, it's our paying subscription service. After that, it would be sponsors. And then down the list would be YouTube. I said, so listen, I might take a haircut. Fine. You guys are fine. No one is out a job. Here's what we're going to do. And I wrote that 16-minute apology video, uh, of, which just included every offensive thing that I've ever said. And we actually wrote new ones. And um, we released it. It was, I'm sorry for... <laughs> you added ev- new offensive things yeah, to your yeah, apology? I the, yes. I, I think I said, uh, uh, like, I'm sorry for... And my producer, who's a biracialist, I'm sorry for uh, telling Porter Black that he was not black enough to be black... <laughs> not white enough to be white. The pain that you suffer never truly being accepted in either culture is far worse than any embarrassment uh, I could inflict upon you. I'm sorry, Garrett. To Harley Davidson writer, and I just went, and it was, you people can find this, it's a 20 minute video of insulting everybody. And because I didn't go out, and I don't hate Carlos Maza. Do you, do you know what happened? He tried to start a channel after that. And uh, everyone said, you gotta, you gotta do something. I said, you know what? Hey, the guy went on his own. Because he got fired and I said, I, I wish him well. You know, the guy's trying. Yeah, yeah, you're not against him. I know. Well, it's like, listen, sometimes you cause it. I, I, you know, the number of things that I have been called by by various people, if I wanted to have them all canceled, you know, I can't imagine. There'd probably be a, at least 200 people I'd have fired if I if I had the power. I just don't have any interest in it. It's not to say I like to be insulted or I like some of the names that have come my way. But I mean, and I remember just even with Trump when he was calling me a bimbo and all this other stuff that was coming out of Breitbart that began with C and all this, all those words. And people say, you have to respond, you have to respond. I'm like, I, I'm not going to respond. I don't want to respond. It, what other people think of me is none of my business. And I'm not the thought police and I'm not the word police. And I am strong enough to ignore this and move on 
going on as, as my sister-in-law, Diane, again, my, my spiritual guru, uh, she always asks, is this something I can completely ignore and go on leading my beautiful life? And honestly, when somebody's calling you mean words, I can't think of a situation where the answer to that would be anything other than, yes, I can. Yes, I can ignore that too. And I should. Right. Now, you know, I will say there's, there's a little bit of, uh, and, and, and before you jump on me, a little bit of female privilege there and that there's something a little bit different in being a husband. So I'll tell you what, I genuinely don't get offended. Okay. I really don't. I don't care. People can say whatever they want. People have come up to cuss me out. People, I had a, a, a transgender autistic person in a letterman jacket, throw a homeless person's lunchbox at me. And oh you, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Yeah, that actually happened. That actually happened. Can you, can it you say it a, again? Transgender, homeless, gender, I believe autistic because they had a fidget spinner, a transgender, uh, autistic black person in a letterman's jacket, steal a homeless person, a hobo's lunchbox and throw it at me. And YouTube demonetized the video because I laughed at this person. I laughed at this person because this person goes, oh, you know what? You don't know what it's like to be a woman. F you. I just became a woman. And I just, I laughed. Like it's, this is a man with a shaved head and a letterman's jacket and lipstick. And he's throwing a homeless man's lunchbox at me. And my laugh going, <laughs> was considered hate speech. Anyway, so, so in other words, I can endure, just, I'll, I'll, if you want, uh, I think I need to get your email. I'll send you the video after this. It's called When Transgenders Attack because I was literally attacked by this transgender person. This transgender person <laughs> stole a homeless person, like a pencil case, but it had his, uh, his lunch in it and whipped it at me when I was at a table doing Change My Mind. And me laughing at this person shuffling off in platform heels was considered uh, mocking his or her immutable characteristics, according to YouTube. But can I tell you something? I think I think most people have a very high threshold for offense. I do. I think the average American is like, eh, I'm fine. And I think this is one of the reasons why the left loses its mind. Again, I, by left, I mean established left over there on the far left. I don't mean a normal liberal or progressive. I have lots of friends in that category who don't feel this way. But that's that's why they get up. They they they, they get so judgmental. The left does. When people don't get offended when Trump says this or he says that or, you know, some, some Republican, it's always a Republican says something that's borderline quote offensive. And most people shrug or they yawn and then they're like, you, too, are a bunch of bigots. It's like, I just, you know, what's what my offense is that I wasn't offended enough. All right, I'll work on it. I'm, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to I'm going to get angry. I'll, I will work on it. Yeah, no, I, no, I, th I think you're right. And that's why I think the, the message sort of falls on deaf ears. But to go back to what I was saying about the female privilege, like I said, let me explain this a little bit. For people who are so open to uh, all sexual lifestyles, they're very quick to call me a fat, right? Very quick. If you just read the YouTube comment section. Um, I don't think anyone has ever been called in the word, I use this word, Jew fag more than myself, just because I support Israel and apparently the gay insults. Like, oh, you're quick to weaponize sexuality. And by the way, it doesn't really insult me because I don't have a problem with anyone being gay. So that doesn't bother me at all. But what did bother me is, um, and I almost shouldn't say this because people say it gets under your skin, but I have a great wife who told me, listen, just, I understand where you're coming from, but don't worry about me. Um, you know, we haven't had children. You asked me about that earlier. And I noticed that you paused and I said, hopefully soon, God willing. Well, um, the truth is my wife and I have been trying to have children for a long time. And uh, I can talk about it now because I've talked about this on air, but um, we found out that my wife had an issue. And not like Lana Dunham has every single issue when she claims it. Like my wife actually had to have uh, surgery uh, for scar tissue. She has, we found out she had endometriosis and she had some issues going on. And then when she came out of a procedure actually recently, she uh, was paralyzed from the waist down because of a reaction to the anesthesia. But what really bothered me, um, and now we're doing IVF and as Christians, we're doing it in a way where we only fertilize the embryo that will be implanted. So before people send their hate mail, it's something we've looked into quite a bit. But people would spread these 
there was a rumor spread that Stephen is gay. Look, he's 30. He's married to a beautiful wife and he won't even give her children. And uh, until now where people kind of know, because we've talked about IVF and I've wanted to, to be, uh, you know, I've wanted to let our audience in on that and educate them. I never talked about it because it was private and I'm not going to throw my wife under the bus and say, Hey, my boys can swim. My wife has, you know, a, a, whatever it is, tilted pelvis or whatever the medical terminology is. And it really bothered me because my wife reads the comments. And I say that because, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit different as a woman. Um, people insult your husband, you get mad, but you don't want to tear someone's head off in the same way as a protector and a provider. And it was something that I can't protect her from other than saying, don't read it. And my wife said, you know what? I understand, but don't, don't worry about me. Because I, I, I was like, I, I, I signed up for this and she didn't. And that is something that has always bothered me. Um, but I've really learned to, uh, to, to get past it because my wife has said, it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter what someone calls me. I get that they're just doing it to try and get to you. I understand all of that. I think my I think my husband Doug can relate to your feelings as well. Like he he and even even George W. Bush. Yeah, I remember um he he was saying it's it's easier for him to be criticized than to hear his dad criticize George H. W. Bush. Uh, you know, this is years ago. And I think that's that's how Doug feels. Doug Doug can take it if you attack him, but he gets upset. He gets upset at the really nasty slings and arrows that come my way. But I would say over time, he's gotten used to them. And I'm sure, you know, Hillary, will, she'll she'll get, feel the same. Can I just applaud you, though, for, for one second? Because I appreciate you talking about the infertility issue. I think too many people don't. And then it really, it does make women feel somehow like they failed when they can't get pregnant. I mean, I, I went through this myself and I've actually never talked about it publicly, but uh, I felt too, like I was a failure because you grow up now. I know you and your wife waited um, to, to have sex until you got married, which I think is awesome. But like, you didn't have this worry about getting, getting pregnant prior to wedlock. You know, I, I, I didn't follow that same path. So I, I always, I was one of those people who was like, oh my God, the first time I have sex, I'm going to get pregnant. I'm going to get pregnant. I think that's how most women are. Like I'm going to have, I'm like the most fertile person on, on earth. And then when you get to the place in life where you actually want to have the babies and you have any sort of trouble, which so many women do, especially because a lot of us, not Hillary from the sound of it, but a lot of us wait until we're older, we're advanced maternal age. For me, I was 38. Um, you find out you can't, or you're, or it's a, at least an issue. And you're like, oh my God. And you do I felt like I was failing, like my body was failing me, like I was failing as a woman. And then I would go through a number of things where it wasn't me telling myself I had failed. It was like the feminist crowd. It was like womanista, like I had three C-sections. Well, apparently that doesn't count. You don't really have a baby if you have it by C-section. It has to come out vaginally or it doesn't count. Your kid doesn't count. You're not really a mother. I'm like, why the hell is everybody so interested in how my baby's going to come out of my body? Back off. Same thing with breastfeeding. If you don't breastfeed the kid, you know, exclusively for all the time, you give a formula. Well, you suck as a mother. Your child's not as good as mine. And you're a bad person. It's like the shaming that we do of people. But I think the only way forward is to talk more about it. There's, there's no shame in having endometriosis or an, an issue that makes it difficult for you to get pregnant. And I just feel like hopefully you guys have a good doctor. But I feel like while this period of like trying feels interminable, once you have the baby, it's totally forgotten. It's completely forgotten, you know, and then and then also completely joyful. Well, I appreciate you. I didn't know that you hadn't spoken about that. Um, we, I brought it up when I, I asked my wife and after a while, you know, we had a, we had a miscarriage, which I think some people don't understand. Um, is devastating to, to the man as well. 
when people say my body, my choice, well, that's absolutely true. And I understand that my wife is dealing with something physically, a physical connection that I never will, that I never will. But you have to understand that I was naming that child. I was wondering if he was going to have my eyes or my wife's eyes. I was wondering if it was going to be a boy or a girl. You know, these were things like, like this is something that affects both people. And, and, and that's important. It doesn't mean that I experience everything that my wife does, but it does mean that we need to acknowledge an experience together and talk about it together so that we can heal from it together. And I will say coming from the Christian perspective, um, I think it's important to tell people, especially, you know, young women, like, listen, you don't have a window forever. That is true. And you don't even know if you're going to be able to get pregnant. So that is true. And we also shouldn't be asking, telling women like, oh, well, why don't you have a baby yet? Because there could be a bunch of reasons as to why they don't. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they're a screeching feminazi who, you know, believe in overpopulation. And so that both things can be true at the same time. And that's really the only reason I ever spoke about it and, and, and felt compelled to be authentic. Um, and of course, I had to make sure that my wife was okay with it, just because I think it's something that a lot of people suffer through uh, alone. And they and they don't have to. And I know how self-righteous it like celebrities like you are not alone. And that happens anytime some celebrity, you know, ends up committing suicide with depression. And, and so people come out and all of a sudden, everyone has depression. That's why I've talked about depression a lot on my show. And I talk about it when there's no story in the news about depression. Because I say, I have no reason to bring this up. I have nothing to gain. There isn't a Heath Ledger situation. But this is something that I've suffered with. And this is something that you can get past. And it's not this idea that, oh, you don't know what it's like. It's like, no, I know exactly what it's like. I know exactly what it's like to struggle with depression. And guess what? You can get over it and you can beat it and you shouldn't let it define you. But a lot of these people on the left who say, don't let it define, like they say, don't let it define you, the stutter with Joe Biden, right? He's like, it is not something that defines you. And then they tried to use it to define him, to make it, uh, to make him completely impermeable to any sort of insult. So I was like, well, no, hold on a second, yeah, you, Joe. You can't use stutter. it as a sword and a shield. Right. It's like, it's not your stutter. It's the fact that you said you met the Pope when you didn't. That is not, that's not a stutter. It's the fact that you, you, you made up stories about people you've never met. Uh, at times, they never occurred in places that don't even exist, Joe. So I bring this up because, hey, it's just a small part of me that I've struggled with. Uh, I've talked about mental health before and depression and and uh, this is a small, and I just try and be open. Do you think that that's related to you being so funny? You know, the, the, the old joke about the sad clown, but I do, I know a fair amount of comedians and I do think there's a strain of depression in a lot of them, but I think it's, it's the flop to a great flip. You know, it's like, you get this great ability. I don't know if it's nerves, like you, you said, you have at this, at the top of your show, but there's something in you that makes you quicker and more clever than the average person. Maybe it's a defense mechanism, you know, from your discomfort and maybe part of that's driven by depression or I don't know, just some sort of struggle. I don't know. When I when I look at you and I look at a lot of the comedians I know who are on who can be sadder, who are, who can be a little bit more sad than than the average Joe. I um, think it's all I, part of the same thing. Yeah, I, th I think it is. I think. Listen, I think people who tend to go into you know the number one fear is public speaking. I think they're they're, they're wired a little bit differently. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer necessarily. That. I also know people who are depressed and are wildly unfunny. So obviously the rule isn't for everybody. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 you're just, just miserable. You and I don't want to hear from. Go be depressed by yourself. Okay, we get it. You have a tie that spins. Shut up. What did you? So what did you do? What? What? How do you manage it? Uh, with depression. Um. Well, yeah. listen. Being being a. I will say this, and I've talked about this before, if not for my faith, and, uh, you know, listen, I know I have a potty mouth sometimes, and I'm, I'm not a perfect example of a Christian. If I weren't a Christian, I, I definitely would probably have killed myself. So mm. that's something, understanding, when people say, like, oh, are you saying that uh, you're only doing this because God is watching? Uh, I'm not saying that's why you do everything, but pretty much, yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a guardrail. 
Uh, I think that as someone who has suffered with depression and a big part of depression is this, you know, this, this meaninglessness that people, and you, understanding, no, there is meaning. And having seen a rhyme and a reason to my life uh, and knowing that, that, that I can't see what's around the bend and, and, and only God does. And listen, there's also medication that enters the equation for me really more so is, is, is uh, speaking with a professional. And what I did find was um, this wonderful woman who's uh, more of an executive uh, uh, psychologist. So someone who works with like high level athletes, someone who works with, you know, um, executives of successful companies, because I tell you what, one time I went into a shrink. This is a true story. I went in and I said, what are you, you know, what are your, uh, what are your big problems? And, and I said, well, you know, I'm just really stressed and I'm kind of tired. And I said, why do you think you're so tired? I said, you know, it's just one of those things. I can't make a mistake because I have millions of people watching me. And, you know, there's a security issue in the back of my mind because people want to kill me. And I know that this psychologist thought I was delusional. Paranoid mm -hmm. delusion. Thinks millions of people are watching him. I said, no, 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 no. I have a show. Where we have tens of millions of people. And I'm actually on the ISIS kill list. Don't, don't sit, put me in a padded room. So sometimes what we do, Megan, is... Um, and I don't mean that it, this is it's certainly not an elitist thing, but just our job is very different. I mean, you know, most people who work a job, they have to perform for their boss. We have to perform for everybody else. And really the people who would have the most in common with that would probably be bosses themselves because they have to perform to make sure that all their employees are, are paid and professional athletes who have to for, perform for big crowds of people. And there's a reason that it's a different kind of, of psychotherapy um, that helps those kinds of people. So um, yeah, for me, uh, it's, it's been invaluable and I think it's, it's, it's really helped uh, improve my quality of life. Um, but yeah, without, without the true North, without, um, you know, my, my, my faith. And when I say that, I mean, faith, I'm a Christian, Jesus Christ. I'm, that that's what it is. I know people are not spiritual. Like people say, uh, I know that I would be a lot worse off. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I can relate to it too. I, I, I mean, I've definitely had a rough five years. <laughs> I'm losing track. There's been a lot. Um, things get crazy when you get well-known, that's for sure. And um, I have been a, a religious therapy attender for a long time. Uh, in fact, it was, we mentioned Stossel's wife, who is a psychiatrist. She's the one who recommended the, the, the therapist to me here in New York. Uh, it was like 10 years ago. And I've been seeing oh, wow. the same guy ever since. And, and it's not like he solves your problems. It doesn't solve your problems. It just, you just feel better. I've always been an avid journal keeper. And this mm -hmm. is a sad truth. I've stopped keeping a journal since I've become well-known. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid someone's going to find my journals and use them against me. I just, I, I, it's sad. It's a real loss for me. I've been keeping them since I was a little girl. So that's what I'm with Brett Kavanaugh. Who, I mean, who keeps a journal forever? That's what's. They, See, they it made it. perfect sense to me. I was like, oh my god, Brett, he's my brother from another mother. I, I do the same. I could also produce my diaries from the time I was 15. Um, right. But the therapist kind of replaces that, you know. Like now, I can, I can just talk to him, and it's the one relationship you have in your life where, like, you just get to do all the talking. It can be all about yourself, and the other person needs nothing from you. They're only there to say, well, I guess I, I, I also have that relationship with, I also have that relationship with you, Abby. <laughs> but so I have, I have those two. Well, my, my therapist is a little different. She does talk back and that's what I like about her. She's very um, practical. Like I went to other therapists who, okay, how do you feel? Tell me about your mother. Uh, being an executive psychologist, she goes right away. She goes, okay, how much are you sleeping? I'm like, ah, 
at that point, maybe like, you know, four hours. Okay, we need to fix that. She goes, okay, how much time are you taking for rest? And, and she would say, she goes, listen, what I do is very different. Most people who go to psychologists, they need to get off their ass and do something. And, so she says, and that's most people. So the people who come in here, they need to be coached on how to pull it back a little bit. They need to be coached on balancing their life a little bit. They need to be coached mm -hmm. on relaxing a little bit more. And that's kind of what she specializes in. And if she thinks, and if I'm being lazy, don't get me wrong, she'll kick my ass, but she will actually lay out a plan and go, okay, here's what I want you to do. For example, what would happen before the show, I would be doing so many things and I'd be, you know, signing, signing contracts or what I would have to do, sign, uh, sign merchandise. And then I would have to uh, get off a phone call and I'd sit down, boom, to the show. She said, here's what you're going to do. You are going to take 10 minutes before the show and you're going to go alone in your office and put on noise canceling headphones and you're going to breathe. And then when you leave, you're going to take five minutes after the show, just five minutes after an hour, after two hour show, and you're just going to be by yourself. Because what would happen is I walk out the door and people are going, hey, we have this request and hey, we need to get, we need to, get to this shoot. Hey, we need to, we're bringing the sand in for the Saving Private Ryan parody. Hey, we need a permit to go to change your mind. Hey, here's your bulletproof vest when we're doing this. Thing. You know what I mean? But it, ha it happens while I'm walking out of the studio. And I will say I have a great team of people here now who actually care about my well-being. That hasn't always been the case. And, um, you know, we have a big, uh, a big uh, mural of Andrew Breitbart, who was really kind of my mentor on the conservative side. I tell you what, I watched toward the end of his life. Um, I watched people who were beholden to him for their paycheck, and they should have told him to slow down. Everyone knew it, mm -hmm. and instead, they wanted more and more and more because they wanted to be a part of the Andrew Breitbart show. And I was—he was the first person to RSVP at my wedding. I never worked for Andrew; he never paid me a dime. But he had some health scares, and I remember looking at people who worked for him, going like, "Why aren't you telling him that he needs to take some time?" Why aren't you giving? Why aren't you telling him that he needs to slow down? Why aren't you telling him that he needs to focus on his health? Because the people who work for you, listen, you're their meal ticket, and they don't do that. Guess what? I actually do have. That's why I, I really. People say it's like a family. I have people here who do that now while I work. They go, hey, go home. We have some stuff we can work on without you. Uh, you've been doing this for 15 hours or whatever, and and so. Um, I really have to just say it's, yeah, my, my psychologist is very helpful. I have a fantastic wife, my faith, and I cannot stress the importance enough and how grateful I am for the, the team of people that I, that I have around me because that has been a big difference maker. When I was in Fox News, the darkest time of my life was I was at Fox News and I'm a, I have a little bit of a compulsive personality. Some people become self-destructive, but I'm like, let me replace it with something productive. So I was in New York City. Fox News. They made me move to New York. And, you know, I'm like, let's say I appear five times a week. But what else do you do? And I wrote an article for the Fox. That was basically what I did. And they had me on, you know, a retainer. So I couldn't, I, exclusivity. So I started doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu nine times a week. In addition to lifting two or three times. So basically two a days. Which, even professional athlete, it was very stupid. I, I turned my joints into a fine powder. But I had nothing to do. I had, I was like, I got to do something. I'm sitting alone in an apartment. And uh, I have no friends. Then what happened was I blew my back out at, uh, at a 24-hour fitness. You know how gyms in New York, they don't have air exchangers. They get so humid. And what happened is I was just doing a row. My foot went on this grip pad and my foot slipped off. And you could actually hear a... And I fell back. And when they tried to bend me up, um, I actually... People talk about... I actually blacked out from the pain. I actually passed out from the pain. So they cut off my clothes and they, they couldn't get me into a stretcher because it's New York. And I'm sorry, but I hate the city of New York. I had to get out of there with my hair on fire. I know there are a lot of good qualities, 
but they couldn't even get me into an elevator or down the stairs in a stretcher. So they had to put a stretcher kind of across one of those uh, like care chairs and have me sit on an angle. Then the ambulance, they cut off my my pants from my uh, from my ankle all the way up. Guy sticks his thumb up my ass, like he had oh, fingers boy. like sausages because they're checking to see if your sphincter works right to see if your back is basically completely ruptured um and i couldn't walk i couldn't walk i had uh completely herniated a ruptured a disc and um i was staring at the ceiling for about eight hours naked and i didn't have anyone who could uh who or who was willing to come and help at all i had one friend from the lower east side who came and he helped me back because i couldn't walk back and uh, then I had one person who was an intern at Hannity's show who I really liked. And uh, I remember calling my my girlfriend, who is now my wife at the time, saying like, hey, just so you know, she's going to have to help me like disrobe and put my pants on. Uh, and that was the moment of realization for me. That was when I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not really, I don't think I'm going to renew um, what I'm doing here. I'm in a city that I hate. I have no friends. It's very clear these people, like, they, sure, they want to go to Langen's and have a couple of drinks, but they're not going to. I stared at a ceiling. For eight hours, mm-hmm. unable to move my legs, um, and uh, and uh, had to make some some decisions, some 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 real changes. But think about that when I when I hear you talking about that and about how you know it was it was like jumping off a cliff because you're young, you don't know where your next job is coming from. There's not a lot of outlets for a conservative in media, and certainly not in late night comedy, a lane that you might have otherwise pursued. So you're there, you're twisting in the wind, you're actually hurting, you're physically hurting, maybe emotionally hurting too. And I do think it's one of those stories that keep that gives people hope. Like, look at you now. I mean, you're you're really you're king of YouTube. I mean, it, of course, there's always something to keep you humble. You know, like I I I did that Tara Reid interview that you were so kindly promoted on your show, and I was like, oh, this is so great. It's got like one point seven million hits. It's awesome. And then I look at my kids, and they they follow somebody who jumps into like little baby pools full of full of like plastic balls, and those people have a hundred million views. <laughs> so there's always something to keep your ego in check. But you're yes. killing it, right? And it landed, it landed in a great place for you and, and your family. You're with, you're with a wife that you love. You sounds like you do have friends and and good support now. I can relate to all of that. Sometimes taking that leap off the cliff, while damn scary on on the first step and during the fall, lands you in yeah. a much softer, better place. Where some guy at Lenox Hill jams his thumb up your ass. The guy didn't even ask. <laughs> He even warned me. And I was like, what, what the hell is going on? And here's actually, this is the true, true part of that story too. Do you realize it was a $10,000 bill? I didn't have any health insurance. I was a you know, Fox News contributor. So you know how that works. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any health insurance at this point. I was stupid. One of those kids who chose not to buy health insurance. Nothing will happen. But they kept, tra- they tried to send me home. They go, okay, you're fine. Your back's fine. Go home. I go, uh, I can't walk. They go, get up. And they start moving the hospital bed. You know, it's, it's, I'm prone. And they start lifting it. And I start screaming. They go, oh, okay, okay. They go, oh, we're going to go over here. All right, we'll come back. So they come back on the hour every hour and lift it up one more notch. And I scream every single time because oh, I can't, I'm like, I can't move my back. My friend had to wheel me home. I get a call three days later. It's the chairman of the board at Lenox Hill Hospital. Either they misread the MRI or they read the wrong MRI. And I had serious stenosis and I had ruptured a disc. And oh. um, here's what happened. It was like a $10,000 something dollar bill. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, you don't have insurance? It's cash? Hold on. Oh, it's uh, like 40 bucks. I was like, okay. What? Yeah, it was like, or it might Wait, have been 300 They just wrote it off? Well, because they, they, they realized they didn't have insurance, and they're like, hey, can you pay a couple hundred dollars? And I said, sure. 
Oh my God, okay. it's unbelievable. That's what all the, people don't know that because there's, they overcharge. I mean, really what happened? I had an MRI, I had a picture taken and I, something cut off my clothes and a guy jammed his thumb up my ass and I looked at the ceiling for eight hours. Well, meanwhile, you could have gotten that done in Times Square for like 500 bucks. You didn't have to pay 10,000. Believe me, I could have. <laughs> and I hung out with Jim Norton quite a bit. So he knew all the hot spots. I don't um, think I've ever had a show where we've talked about thumb up the ass as much as we, <laughs> I think it's not a thing I've discussed except for some woman I used to know. Well, okay, that's her problem. This is a medical procedure, and this is because they are testing to make sure that your spinal cord has not actually been severed. You know what? You know what, Megan? You go and sit up there in your nice, your nice, never having had a doctor's thumb up your ass tower, and I hope, I hope uh, that it's never to you. Assumes facts, not in evidence, Mr. Male Privilege. Try to go for an annual as a woman every year. Everything's, everything's where it's supposed to be. You know exactly what the drill is, and then suddenly you're like, whoa, whoa, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, well, I get that same thing every year once I hit 40. And, and my dad's doctor used a kaleidoscope, which almost seems impractical. So, <laughs> all right, listen, I do want to I, I know I have to let you go because you've been so generous with your time. But can I just ask you because I, I I'm dying to just ask you. All right, good, because I have to ask you about big tech. You're, you're like the number one person I want to ask about big tech. When I saw the thing about Hunter Biden and Facebook and YouTube, not not allowing the story to go out when I see uh, Twitter's not YouTube, Facebook and Twitter. When I see Twitter's little warnings all over people's tweets, like, are you sure you want to tweet that? Are you sure you want to retweet this? Don't you want to read the article before you I'm like, screw you, Jack? What are you? You're not my daddy. Like, move along, brother. And it, it's it's maddening to me as somebody who believes in the First Amendment and doesn't want Twitter making my editorial decisions. And you, of course, are, you know, the poster child for this after everything that happened at YouTube. And you, obviously you came back a year later, they, they allowed the monetization to come back and you've landed more than on your feet. You've got millions and millions of fans and viewers. But what do you think? Because I, I think people are really worried about this, given the amount of power they have. And I don't know that government is the solution, but there it seems like we need a solution. Actually, it's interesting the way that you described it. Are you sure you want to tweet this? You make Jack Dorsey sound like the modern equivalent of that bent back paperclip who's you're trying to like, I'm trying to spell rhinovirus. Did you mean rhinoceros? No, Clippy, get off my <laughs> word document. That's what he is. He's the new paperclip. Um, you know what? Uh, I think that everything you've said is fair. I, I, and I, I, I will tell you this, Donald Trump has changed my views on some things. I used to be far more libertarian. Um, and now I understand that there are some things where you do need the government to step in because there are, there are powers that be that are more powerful, and especially now, that can infringe uh, upon your rights in a more invasive way. Like I said, you know, big tech, they're more powerful when you combine them than really in many ways the American government. Um, here's my position on it. And I've always maintained this and same thing with YouTube. And I think that's why I'm in a different position than a lot of people who, well, first off, I get litigious when I know I'm right. It's, and it's not just, oh, you're censoring. It's aim, ready, fire. I measure twice and I cut once and I make sure that I'm in the right. So that's the first thing that I have done. That's what my experience I think has been a little bit different. And a lot of other people don't have half a million dollars. They just put into their budget for having lawyers on retainer. I saw it from the very get-go. I said, I'm going to have to keep receipts for everything. And a lot of people were careless. As it relates to big tech, Listen, the 230 protections, this is something we've been talking about for a long time. YouTube can make their rules and they can ban anyone they want. But when they say, hey, we are an open forum for all ideas and no, 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 we are not censoring conservatives and we want you to be here. And especially when they take money from conservatives to advertise on their platform, which by the way, they've done with me directly. Now we've entered into a business relationship. It's a little bit different. What I think is the first step, 
And I've been saying this for years, and it seems like we might be closer to it now, though I don't really know what comes from these hearings. And dear God, I just pray no one ever subpoenas me or summons me because it's not like I have some information exclusively that nobody else out there would. So Crenshaw or Cruz, if you're listening, please, dear God, don't subpoena me. Um, I think the first step is making them declare, okay, are you a publisher or are you a platform? Because they, if, if you're a publisher, if you have the ability to censor points of view, for example, if you want to make it your policy that it's hate speech for someone to speak out against eight-year-olds on puberty blockers, then, okay, you are now a publisher and you lose your protections of being an open platform and you are liable. In other words, you can't, for people out there listening who don't understand, um, you know, like Sprint or Verizon, these are public utilities. So it's kind of the most apt comparison. Um, they can't censor people. In other words, even if, if a bunch of neo-Nazis are, are just talking on the phone, or let's just say, let's, let's say neo-Nazis, because maybe their phones could be tapped and they could be actual terrorists. But let's just say some racists, or let's just say like Elon Omar's on the phone talking about how much she hates Jews. Okay, Verizon cannot, they can't just cut off her service. They can't do that because this is effectively, it's an open platform. They have these same protections. They're a utility. But the New York Times can say, we're not going to publish your piece. They're a publisher. So with YouTube and with Twitter and Facebook, they've been treated like the town square, like open platforms, which, you know, is, is that, but that protection has to be predicated on this idea that barring actual crimes being committed, they do not touch the comments, the content. Everyone has an open and level playing field to express their point of view. Um, and we obviously know that that's not the case. We know that that's not what is going on right now, despite what Jack Dorsey tells us with his, his, his bird feeder and his beard. Um, and so I just, I want them to have to declare it. I think they should be held to one standard or the other. Yeah, which they don't want to do. Just the audience knows they don't want to do that because it exposes them to liability. The Section 230 pre prevents them from having liability if somebody says something defamatory on their platform because they're not a publisher. They can't control, you know, they can't help what Ilan Omar says on the phone line, to use your analogy. And and honestly, it, it, to, to go with that, it would be the same as Sprint listening to two racists having a conversation and then suddenly one's words get cut off and the rest of the sentence can no longer be heard by the other guy because someone at Sprint has deemed your words offensive and not allowed to be on their platform. Everyone knows that would be absurd. That that would never happen. But that's kind of what is happening. You're right. I use Ilan Omar as an exact example. People don't realize she's an anti-Semite. Like she's very clear. Like she did. Well, okay. She hates Israel. Let's put it that way. Rashida Tlaib is a little bit worse. Now, uh, when asked about Hezbollah, there was something in some kind of interview I did a joke about Ilan Omar where she said, huh, Hezbollah? I said, who is she? She's talking like Rafiki, Hezbollah? And it was like a Disney character. And that was, oh, maybe borderline because I'm doing an impression of Ilan Omar. What about the fact that she, what about the fact that she was saying she doesn't like, she basically doesn't like Jews? So in other words, if you're, if YouTube is going to allow Ilan Omar to go up there and say that Israel doesn't have the right to exist, but then they decide that even with the search algorithms, if you search Steven Crowder, Ilan Omar, it doesn't show up. They are now effectively acting like a publisher. This happened well, on and, YouTube. And your stuff about the, the gender is dead on too. We just talked to Abigail Schreier not long ago, and we were looking into this before the interview. They really will censor you if you put anything out there that challenges these notions that are being pushed that maybe we should pause a bit before we allow our 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 minor minor children under the age of 18 to just run off campus and go get themselves some testosterone without telling their parents stuff like that is being censored and stopped from circulation even stuff about abigail's book oh and what about the billboard right we saw that it's beyond tech now some parents bought a billboard using um, GoFundMe money uh, to, to call attention. They said puberty is not a medical condition. In other words, you don't need to treat it. When your kid goes through puberty, you don't need to stop it with hormone right. blockers. And um, it did pretty well. So then they got a GoFundMe to sort of get some other uh, other billboards up. 
And GoFundMe said, no, you can't. So it's like it keeps spreading where only the speech that they like can be protected. Everybody else gets censored. He actually removed a video of mine. So this was at a town hall in Burlington, Vermont, a town hall, mind you. So it's in a, it's in a uh, single party consent state and it's at a public town hall. And the worst part about this that it got banned is the guy who was giving this, this, uh, this advice. It was basically advice on how to get your, your sex reassignment surgery paid for under like Medicare. But this doctor who was telling us, he was telling me and my producer on camera how to, uh, administer puberty blockers to our children and how to actually get it partially subsidized. His name was, I swear to you, Dr. Rex Butts. Dr. Rex Butts. Just because of that, I'm furious that the video was removed. But it was removed, (laughs) even though it was recorded at a public town hall because it was a violation of policy. Right, That was removed. We were at a town hall and they were telling us how to get your sex reassignment surgery paid for by Medicaid, Medicare, and how to. And they were saying in this video, yeah, you put your kid on puberty blockers, you put them on the hormones. And then if they decide that they, uh, they want to uh, be the, they decide they want to be the gender that they were identified with, when they're, then you just take them off. They're, they're, they're no worse off. Like, no, 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 no. Actually, mm-hmm. 90% of kids, actually 99% of kids who think they have gender dysphoria, they grow out of it. That number drops to zero when you give them hormones. What happened to science? We follow the science. Oh, really? You follow the science on the no. homemade hot mask that you're fondling, by the way. Joe Biden fondling it like it's, your, like it's the next eight-year-old at a rally. You're constantly touching it. What's the science that tells me that mask, not a surgical mask, not a mask that's washed in a commercial hospital, ultra-hot washing machine, and then replaced and sanitized after every use? Name me one scientific study that shows that it works. But I tell you what, I can show you scientific studies that show pumping men full of estrogen causes cancer. That's why, mm-hmm. why do you think people are, why do you think people are eating organic? For some reason, people, right, xenoestrogens, they have a problem and they'll, they'll pontificate on how they only drink from Nalgene or glass because of BPA in the plastic and it mimics estrogen in the body. When directed, uh, when, when injected directly into an eight-year-old's ass cheek, however, they say, well, we don't know the science yet. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. We do know that altering the hormones of a child going through puberty has irreparable results. We just don't know how damaging it is. And everyone in big tech has agreed that what I've just said is a violation of their policy. Yeah, has to be censored. That's what Abigail's going through. The name of her book is Irreversible Damage for a reason. I find it really scary that this is not being allowed to be circulated and discussed because, I mean, we're sort of talking facetiously in, in, in one moment about, you know, two racists on the phone. And But by the way, that there is First Amendment protection for that in the United States of America. Um, but like this is the other end of the of the extreme of the, of the spectrum where people are talking about, wait, I have real objections to what you're saying because I think it's genuinely harmful to children. And those discussions are being silenced by these big tech bosses or even, you know, the publishing industry um, because they've decided it's wrong. And and that's an example where the scientists are working in tandem with those folks because they have submitted to the woke mob too. the scientists know that it's not okay to just affirm a child who the first time is saying, I think I might be a member of the other sex. That's not okay. You've got to probe. You've got to figure out whether that's real or that's coming from some other need for attention or a passing phase. And they have submitted. They're on the knee saying, okay, I don't want to be called a transphobe. I don't want to get pushback from my colleagues in academia or otherwise. So affirm, 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 and and damned the consequences. Yeah. No, yeah. And then uh, Southern Poverty Law Center is this close to putting Johns Hopkins on, uh, on a hate group watch because they won't perform the surgery. By the way, they did. They did perform a lot of transitions for a while, and they realized that the results weren't any better. 
Um, yeah, there's a I lot could, of great people on their on their hate group watch uh, list. They they put Ben Carson on there for a while. Oh, then Ben Carson on there. Oh my, well, he did didn't his <laughs> his mom was saved by the belt buckle. That was one of those things when he talked about trying to stab his mom. I had to do a double take, you know, and I um and I really could have gone down a different path. And when I tried to stab my mother, and was stopped by her belt buckle. Like holy sh! What did you just say? Did he? Did that man just say that he tried to stab his single mother in Detroit, and it was stopped by a belt buckle? This is the most insane thing I've ever heard. Uh, and, and he's the only guy who has like a penthouse more gaudy than Trump, or at least his his house in Florida. Have you ever seen it? No, no. How have you seen it? Well, I, there it went for sale, and it's like a gold plated bathtub surrounded by marble, and like you know, like little naked baby angels, and you're sitting there like this is this is clearly a guy who came from an inner city single mother in Detroit, and he now he's a pimp. Like he decided to go all in, and I love it about him. There are so many surprises, so, Doctor Ben. Can Carson. I tell you? So I I freaking love him. We did a we did a long profile on him when he announced for president back when I was on Fox, and that that um that poem that he said his mother made them read. She kept it up, I think, in their house. She couldn't read, but she she made them read it and she knew it. It was by uh, Mamie White Miller. And I actually just pulled it up. It's called Yourself to Blame. And it explains everything that made Ben Carson with the, with the really tough background he had going on to become the most respected pediatric neurosurgeon in the world. Um how he did it, this mindset and this mindset. I love it. I, I want every kid to read it. I want my kids to read it every day. I want your kids to read it every day. I want everyone's kids to read it every day. So since we have some time, I'm going to read it. It's very short. It's yourself to blame. If things go bad for you and make you a bit ashamed, often you will find out that you have yourself to blame. Swiftly, we ran to mischief and then the bad luck came. Why do we fault others? We have ourselves to blame. Whatever happens to us, here is what we say. Had it not been for so-and-so, things wouldn't have gone that way. And if you are short of friends, I'll tell you what to do. Make an examination. You'll find the faults in you. You're the captain of your ship, so agree with the same. If you travel downward, you have yourself to blame. Love, love, love. P.S. Make sure your mother wears... A large belt buckle because it comes. <laughs> he said his mother stuff in the belt buckle. Those are like you hear like World War II stories, like a ricochet from a bullet, you know, off of like some some piece of like like a clasp. His mom was saved by a belt buckle. I mean, that's when people try to say, right? They did with Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. So, oh, they're not black when they were black Republicans. Like, no, 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 no. Well, listen, Ben Carson was raised in inner city Detroit to a single black mom. Okay, this guy was not playing for the B team by your standards of black. This guy clearly had the black American experience. Experience, and they mm-hmm. still use the same thing. Oh God! Did you see that thing the other night? The other it was um it was election night, I think. Or yeah, Joy Reid once again. God, she says the most bigoted things. I'm sorry, but she does. She's out there talking about whether we can trust this Supreme Court to decide a legal challenge to the election results the right way. And she says to Rachel Maddow, "Oh, would you would you trust Uncle Clarence to decide this legitimately?" Holy shit! Right, like. Uncle Clarence? It's so racist, but she can get away with it because she's not even black. She's liberal. So they'll allow her to get away with it. You know what? It, I bet you if Clarence Thomas, uh, if he could, if we had a fair press, he could be like, well, better to trust Uncle Clarence than that crazy bitch Joy Reid. And that's what he should say. <laughs> I love Clarence. When I actually look, that's what turned Andrew Breitbart conservative. 
Now, I tell everyone here in this office um, about uh, Andrew, Andrew Breitbart said, I don't know if you know this, he said he tuned into the Clarence Thomas uh, uh, hearings to watch this guy get his comeuppance, and he left saying, oh my gosh, they're going to crucify this man. It's a modern-day lynching. There are still people out there who think that what Anita Hill said checked out. And here's something that's important. What we do know, uh, obviously the thing that, that, that sort of people were, I guess they were appalled by was, you know, the, the, the eyelash and the cocaine. He said, who put their pubic hair in my diet cocaine? I like you, but when I heard that, I'm like, oh, I want to party with Clarence Thomas. That's funny. <laughs> That's the guy who made a joke in the office. Who is that offend? How is that sexual harassment when you see a short curly hair and you're like, oh, someone's pubes hair. I'm like, good, good. Okay. That sounds, <laughs> seems like a guy would be fun at a party. It wasn't Anita Hill's word against Clarence Thomas. It was Anita Hill's word against every single other woman, including women of color, who worked for Clarence Thomas. And, of course, the logbooks and the evidence and the statements from Anita Hill's friends, which, which didn't check out. So that's one of those things that they still, though, now, the Democrats, they still just act like Clarence Thomas is guilty. They talk that way. Oh, well, you know what he's guilty of. You know what he's guilty of. They're not mad about that. They're they're mad about him being a black conservative. I mean, that is the ultimate betrayal. That's why people like Can Candace Owens get it worse than anybody. You know, Larry Elder, because th that's the one thing you're not allowed to do is be black and a conservative because they consider it a complete betrayal and you get called the worst things. By the way, if you have not seen Larry Elder's Uncle Tom Get it. It's on YouTube right now. You can download it for the low, low price of, I think, $17. No, I'm not getting a piece of this. I just loved it and thought it was really profound. Um, it's like white people like to feel sorry for themselves for being called racist all the time, which if you're a Republican, undoubtedly you have. Um, if, try being a black conservative. It's like you've got no team, right? Like there's there's no nobody to back you on these re really dicey race discussions. That's changing. And I refuse to watch that film uh, ever since Larry Elder shaved his mustache. I won't support any of his content. <laughs> I feel the same about David Axelrod. I have to say, I, I miss David Axelrod's mustache. Well, that's more out of disgust because you're like, there, that's, that's what's under that thing? With Larry Elder, it was just, it was a very, it was like, it's hard to grow a mustache as good as he had. David Axelrod needs a mustache or there is no lip. It's just a crease. Wait, wait can, can I just take a one little diversion with you for a second? Because I got to ask you while we're talking about news personalities, especially over at CNN, like Axelrod. Forgive me, it's complete non sequitur, but what did you think of the Jeffrey Tubin thing? Okay, so here's the thing. When the Jeffrey Tubin story came out, it was like, oh, there was an accident that happened and some someone saw his, his <laughs> you know, his on webcam. And I thought, they don't fire a guy for that. Like I have done hits on news, on Sky News and BBC where I, well, I wasn't, I was wearing underwear, but it wasn't wearing pants because underneath, you know, the, my desk. So I thought, well, that's not a big deal. Until I found out the guy was actually masturbating while live on a Zoom call. And then Slate or Salon, the two run together, said, well, let's be, on let's be honest. He's not, uh, Jeffrey Tubin is not the only person who masturbates during business calls. Uh, we all do it. He just got caught. I'm like, uh, no, no. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably just you. Just you and Jeffrey Tubin. I do not masturbate on business conference calls. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I thought. It was amazing, though. And CNN, Brian Stelter tweeted that out. He tweeted out, you can see our full coverage of this story of, uh, of Jeffrey Tubin. And I clicked the link and it goes to CNN and it said that Jeffrey Tubin is taking a temporary leave of absence due to personal reasons. And so I said to Brian Stelter, I said, well, I appreciate that you said our full coverage because you're letting us know that CNN's full coverage is not full coverage because that's not. Here's the, the thing I thought was the wackiest about that is in his apology. This, this is what he said. I believed I was not visible on Zoom. I thought no one on the Zoom call could see me. I thought I had muted the Zoom video. So he knew he was still in the middle of the Zoom call. He, he didn't even think it was off. He thought he had hit mute. The recklessness. This must be a guy who is doing this all day, every day. 
which also means that he hasn't owned a remote control since 1992 because he doesn't know what mute means. <laughs> I muted should... myself. But what did you think? You just thought they couldn't see it. Well, so what, did you think the sound was on and not the video? You thought that they, they, they just, it sounded like you were, what, playing with Silly Putty? Like, what did you think was happening? And meanwhile, they were in the middle at the New Yorker of, of like their election rehearsals. And he was playing like the guy if they had to go to the courts, you know, what's happening in the legal proceedings. And something about that was a turn on that he felt he had to whip it out and start pleasuring himself. Like, are you kidding me? What's there's something wrong with him? Right. I know. Like, and, and this is the thing. I have a lot of forgive, a, a lot of grace. If Jeffrey Tubin, for example, just happened to be caught like someone filming. This is a perfect example. I had a friend in high school. And this isn't a story that I'm necessarily credit, but in, in, in Quebec, pornography is on television. So there was something called Blunerie. And it was like soft, between softcore and hardcore pornography, but it was well known on Quebec television, which is ironically government funded, uh, that at 10.30 on Friday night, Blunerie came on. And so it was kind of something all the boys talked about. Well, I had a friend, I won't name him, but there was this other kid who was a compulsive liar. They lived next door to each other. And uh, I'll just call the kid D. And I remember uh, C was the other friend. He said, hey guys, I caught D. I saw him in his basement. I could see him through his basement window masturbating to Blurnery for like an hour and a half. What a loser, right? And I said, hey, hey, I said, yeah, Calvin. I said, hey, Calvin, even if it's embarrassing, what Dustin was doing is natural. You watching him for an hour and a half is not. Like, you're the creep here. It's the same thing with someone. It's just like, if someone is videotaping someone and they don't know it and they're, you know, walking around naked, if Jeffrey Tubin, like, if, if someone hacked into his computer, I would say, no, absolutely. You don't fire the guy. No, the guy was doing a mock election scenario. He thought he muted it and he was going to town on himself like it was his job. I mean, that's like, I've been in election rehearsals. All that does is kill your sex drive. That doesn't fire it up in any way, shape, or form. And for the guy to just try to hit mute before he whipped it out and pleasured himself tells me there's something wrong with him. Because, of course, I mean, all the women out there know there isn't a woman alive who would who would do anything like that. But I don't, I don't even want to say that because there isn't a man alive. There Really, there are 99% of men would never do such a thing. So there's something wrong with Jeffrey Tubin. That's my final word on it. Something wrong with him. I think every every man would do it just as long as they, if they thought the mute button worked. But my point is, he's no. stupid. No. Well, I think I like listening to you on the issue of sex talk, not to sound too weird, because I think, you know, g given the way you you will tackle anything and you're so open and, you know, you just, you know, holds barred. This is one department in which you are more conservative. You are a man of faith and you I, I'd say you're more old school in this department. I love that you and your wife waited till marriage. And I'm sure, weirdly, you've gotten a lot of shit for that. Like people, they've actually oh, yeah. given you a hard time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Amy Schumer really uh, laid into me when I was on Red Eye about that a long time ago. And then, uh, you know, things, times change. Um, yeah. You know, the reason I, I always talked about that, too. And listen, the, the article, was it uh, a little bit snippy? Sure. that I wrote it at Fox News. It was one of their most popular articles, I guess, that year. And it was just about not having sex until you're married. And the reason I wrote about it is, listen, okay, in the realm of actors, I'm like a two, like I'm not a great looking guy. But in the realm of stand-up comedians, I do, like I do okay. Like I'm good looking enough that I could have sex if I really tried. And my wife could have sex with anyone on the planet just by saying yes, she's beautiful. So uh, often when Christians go out and say, like, we waited, it's like, mm, yeah, I mean, you kind of, <laughs> this is the hand you were dealt. And so I wanted to be very clear and not saying like, we waited now. It was easy because we wore purity wings. No, it was one of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life. 
Um, I, I, I probably walked around with an erection for three years. We had to raise the furniture. It was very, very difficult. <laughs> and, uh, I, I felt strong conviction. It was felt strong convictions. That's what it is. And I want people out there to make, who make that decision to not feel like there's anything abnormal about it. Because anytime that happens in a show, right, they show up someone who sang, Oh, I'm saving myself for marriage. They're secretly like the cheerleader slot, you know, secretly, or they're some kind of a like crazy Christian serial killer. No, no, no. This is how we did things at one point in this country. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of statistics to say, to support that it's the better way to go about sex. And I could just make one argument. Uh, don't be, don't have sex before you're married. Don't get sick and die. Cause there are STIs out there, there are STDs, and you avoid that. But there are also issues where people we're seeing now, they get hung up with it. And, you know, th there's a connection that they, they, they create with people. When you're, when you're training yourself to break up by having sex with everyone you're in a relationship with, um, I, listen, from a faith perspective, I know what my God tells me, that that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And then we now know from a psychological perspective that it can have some negative effects, uh, particularly on teenagers uh, who've been told to just go and have free sex and more so for young women, really more so for young women told, you're liberated, go and have sex as much as you want. You know what? I've told my wife this and she got pretty pissed at me when we first got married. She said, uh, are you saying that uh, if you could have sex with that woman, you would? I said, are you talking about if I'm not a Christian and we're not married and we ha I have no moral compass? She goes, yeah, if all that's gone. I said, yes, absolutely. She goes, and, and, you wouldn't, and then you wouldn't think about it. And I said, nope. I could literally have sex with anyone on this show. It was like The Bachelor, I think we watched. I said, on this show, if I were not a Christian, I could have sex with any one of them. I would have no emotional connection and I could go have lunch tomorrow. That's why uh, men can cheat. And it's wrong. We have to, we have to curb our own innate sexual desires, but that's not the same thing. I'm not saying all women, there are obviously exceptions, but generally speaking, women often feel an intimacy. Yeah. We're not, we're not mostly built like that. I know. I, and I, I look at this all the time because it's like, yes, of course, men, there's thousands of years of evolution behind it. Right. It's like, but we're not monkeys. You know, we can filter out our, our primal desires and not act on every single one of them, men and women. But I agree with you that that it's a stronger situation for men. I think they default to it more often than the women do. And then I think a lot of young women mistake physical affection for love. They think it's a connection that's beyond physical. And uh, and they're looking for that. They're looking for a connection beyond physical. But the physical is a what they, they think it's an easy price to pay, to feel loved, to feel adored, to feel, I don't know, like you matter. And um, I right. struggle with that. I'll tell you, as a, as a mom of, I've got three kids, two boys and a, and a girl. And I want, I would love it if they'd wait till marriage. But if they don't want to do that, no problem. No problem either. As I said, I did not. Um, but I, I don't want them to, to feel any shame around sex. You know, like as a Catholic, I'm trying not, not to, because most of the Catholic church will communicate shame. Um, right. trying not to communicate shame. I want them like not to put too fine a point on it, but like, I'd love for them to wait until it's responsible and they're in love and they're old enough to handle all of the stuff that comes with it. Um, but then to be able to go to town without any shame whatsoever. And like, that is, that is a, like tough needle to thread. You know what? The, the fact that you bring, my parents gave me the sex talk when I was three. I got in trouble in preschool because uh, Miss Miss Henderson was given the whole stork business. And uh, you know what? The thing was, she, her her daughter was in my class, and so she had to keep the lie alive. And I was like, that's not where that's not where babies come from. Let me break it down for you in medical terminology. And that's because my parents never wanted me to think of it shamefully, um, but they wanted to present it in the context of marriage. And it's funny, when I wrote this article, Amy Schumer was uh, on um, 
we were on red eye and she said, well, you know, you're writing this, but you actually don't know. You're only in your twenties. Maybe when you're in your thirties, you're going to be in some really freaky shit. I said, yeah. And I'll be, my wife will be right there with me. Great. Yeah. I I'm very open about it. And sometimes uh, that's one thing where sometimes Christians get upset. They think that I'm too, uh, that I'm a little bit too blunt. Uh, no, if it, you have any questions about sex, I'm totally fine answering them. And people just understand that uh, when I talk about sex, it uh, it's it's in the context of marriage. Um, the marriage bed is undefiled. Now, my issue, not my issue, but what I would say, my worry is when you say like, you know, if they're in love, when you're talking about your daughters, it's really easy for a guy to fake that, to lie to a girl. And so they know the only way to not fake it is like, hey, we actually, is is to be married. There's like, it's an actual contract. That's what I remember Amy Schumer saying like, well, what you're just saying like, what, because of what, because like marriage is some kind of a contract. And I said, that's act. That's literally what it is. But, but can I say something on this? Let me say, let me speak to this because I, I can say, you know, I, my approach to it was always not like he must love me. It was like, you don't deserve me. I'm going to mm-hmm. be very sparing with this gift because you, you don't deserve it. Most of you don't deserve it. <laughs> and I, so like, that's how I always saw it. Like no one's getting there unless they're amazing. And like, it's going to take a while for me to figure out whether they're amazing and worth it. Remember like the right. Seinfeld episode, is he sponge worthy? You know, you got to right. be sponge worthy. And I think if you have that attitude as opposed to like, I don't know, he, he's got to love me. That That's not really how I looked at it. It was just like, he, he has to be worthy. And that kept my numbers relatively low, a fact of which I am proud and um, disease free. And uh, <laughs> it's nice because honestly, now, like my husband doesn't have to walk around meeting like 50,000 former friends and colleagues thinking you've been there, too. And you as and you as well. OK, great. You know, like I just very relieved he doesn't have to live like that. Right. I mean, you know what? And some people give you flax and like, oh, look, Megan Kelly thinks she's so special. To, are you worth it? And you know what? Listen, first off, you're an attractive. I think, you know, you, you know that you're prettier, prettier than the average gal. Everyone listening knows it. So shut up. Try and don't act as though Megan Kelly isn't most likely prettier than you listening. Of course she is. I readily admit it by many leagues with myself, but not all women should feel that way. Are you do you really deserve it? Because you know what? Guys give it out. Anyway, it's like giving out those free T-shirts at a business conference that are printed on an yes. old Hanes or Gildan and you throw in the trash anyway. Well, like, here, you want a T-shirt? Yeah, not really. Take a T-shirt. It's also why when you're talking about girls who feel this emotional intimacy, you know, um, there's a double standard. And I'm okay. And, and I'm not okay with, with statutory rape at all of these female teachers and young men at all. Let me be really clear. But there's a double standard. And I understand it, right? I, I understand why there's a double standard because a male person in a position of authority, let's say a girl is, I don't know, 14 years old, but he abuses that authority and often the girl will have sex with them and they believe that there's some kind of an emotional connection. And um, then they'll actually, the man will use it to manipulate a young girl, typically speaking, uh, to do what it is that he wants because she feels like they have a connection. You don't really see that. That's what's interesting in a lot of these cases with like a teacher having sex with a young boy. Horrible, abhorrent. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being very clear about that. But it's not like this, uh, this home ec teacher has sex with a 14-year-old and then the 14-year-old does whatever he wants. She doesn't have the emotional man- manipulative control over him unless he really wants to have sex like right then. Because then if the teacher's like, hey, I, don't you remember I had sex? He's like, yeah, that was great. Bye. It's different. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I agree with that. I think that the, the, the grown-up does have the emotional manipulative control no matter the genders. They do, but I'm talking, same, put it this way, same way even in, in relationships with people who are uh, of equal age. Boys just, they'll just have sex and it doesn't mean anything. 
is my point. Yeah. Anytime you have someone Well, I think older, more often than not, that can be true. But there are boys who are emotionally needy. They want a connection. I mean, it's actually kind of sweet. One of the things I love to see in young love is how, you know, boys who are like on their own and they're tough guys and they're like, whatever. And then they meet a girl and they fall in love with her and then they become super needy and they want to hold her all the time. And then you see them asleep together on the couch or on a hammock or on the beach. And it's like, oh, I love that, that sort of evolution of young love. But can I ask you, because since you did wait and you managed to do that, and you are a good looking guy, so I'm sure you had opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you do that? Like, how do I teach my sons to do that? Ooh, uh, it's it's really, it, it's tough. Um, I think the biggest thing is just avoiding those situations. So when I was on the road doing standup, um, and like I said, when you're on the road doing standup, you know, and you're like Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey at the Hotel uh, Bananas or whatever it is, um, it, it is like people don't like hearing this, but when you're on stage and you're in a position of power and you're in a room of a few hundred people and a few hundred people are looking at you, it makes it a lot easier if you are trying to find a suitor. Um, but I never had any women up to my hotel room. Um, you know, I followed the Mike Pence rule. Uh, even with even over there at Fox News, there were only three people who I ever went to uh, meals with um, by myself. And uh, two of them were substantially older. And another one was actually was well known that she had worked with someone there and she was she was engaged. So um, you just have to avoid those situations in the first place. And then when you're in a relationship, you have to be in a relationship with someone else who is also on the same page. Because I'll tell you what, I had moments of weakness and so did my wife. So there were some times where I was just like, come on. And then, you know, uh, my wife was like, no. And I'm afterwards, I was like, well, okay, good. I'm glad that we didn't do it. And by the way, let me be really clear about this too. I was just talking with Brian Callen. When I say we didn't have sex, my wife and my wife and I did not have sex. We did not have sex. So people think I'm being blunt. I mean, no BJ's. There was no there was no oral sex definition of is. It might have been there was some heavy petting. Okay, there's some heavy petting over that. That's it. But I I, I bet there were some tubins. <laughs> there were there were some tubins, but I didn't I, <laughs> I didn't do it with her on the Zoom. That was when I did it alone in the dark, and uh, then felt ashamed of myself afterward. Not for sex, <laughs> just because you know it's myself. There is a there is a little, little something there. You're like, oh gosh, I couldn't even just I'm an animal. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's I would say avoid those situations and have a good support group. And then, and then can, can I ask, cause I know you wrote about it, have a good support group and avoid the situations. But when, when I know you wrote, like when you finally got to the wedding night, it was like, ah, uh, uh, like you knew what to do and it wasn't like fumbling and it was all like you, you guys figured it out. Was it as great as you thought it was going to be? If, I'm actually more interested in her than you. Cause I'm sure it was great for you. Well, okay. uh, listen, everyone knows for a woman, obviously the first time is difficult. It's, uh, I don't, I, here's the thing. I don't want to speak for her because it would be wrong, but I will say this. It doesn't have to be perfect the first time, just like you don't have to be perfect when you get married. That's the reason you marry the woman of your youth because you learn together. You get better together. And what I will say, and I don't think a lot of couples can say, is, uh, you know, barring like obviously when my wife went through, you know, surgery with endometriosis, like there are things, there's a dry, there's a dry spell there. Barring these unforeseen incidents or extreme circumstances, our sex life today is better than it was yesterday. And most marriages don't get to say that. So that's yeah. something that's pretty cool. We both learn well, what we and also as Christians, it's esteem your spouse first. So that's pretty cool as a guy. Because basically, barring some kind of thing that is actually like seriously demeaning or causes physical harm. If I'm like, hey, sweetheart, I want to try this. She's like, well, well, if that makes you happy. And same thing if my wife says, this is what I would like. I go, well, listen, if that's what makes you happy. Amy Schumer said we'd be in some, it's into some freaky stuff in my 30s. Confirmed, Megan. And I love it. <laughs> Can I tell you, I just, I, I will say that esteem your spouse first works. I mean, that's, if I had one piece of marital advice for anybody, um, well, it's, it's keep the fights clean and the sex dirty. But after that, it's 
use your most generous lens in looking at your spouse, like interpret everything they do with the most generous lens, because that keeps kindness coming from you and then coming back to you. And it affects everything in your marriage in a very positive way, including sex. Like if you, if your partner wants to take risks with you and you're kind of pissed off at him and you don't, you know, you're just irritated by him. You don't want, you don't want to do that. And you don't want to please him. And you're kind of just as a woman, you're like, screw you. You know, like I, I'm not into it, but if you and he have this generous lens on, you love each other and you connected emotionally several times during the day, everything works out a lot better for both parties. No, you're absolutely right. And the other advice that I would give to people is, uh, you know, work on yourself instead of trying to fix your partner. And that, by the way, that also applies to, that applies both to your marriage and to sex. Cut your nails for God's sake. Just work on yourself before you try and tell them what they need to do. And also never floss your teeth in front of your partner ever. There are certain things you should not do in front of a person who you want to have sex with. You just, there's no reason for them to see you doing that. No, no reason. Close the door when you go on the potty, like just do certain things that like if I sometimes I just say like, I I do not want to have that image in my head of the person I have sex with. I just never want to have it in there. So I think you you can protect yourself with some barriers. No, 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 no. We're gonna have to unpack this. There's a difference between taking a dump in front of your spouse without the door closed and practicing proper dental hygiene. No, no, there isn't. How do you how, how do you like want to have sex with somebody who just had like food flying out of his mouth from the, the floss going in between the choppers? It's disgusting. And it makes a terrible sound like pop, 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 pop. I can't even like I don't even like cutting of the toenails. I used to have an office mate. I'm not going to name who it was. It was a man uh, in my professional life. My husband doesn't do this. But he used to take off his shoe and sock in the office and cut his nails, his toenails in front of me. There are certain things I, I, I don't know if I speak for all women, but I can say. I don't want to see my partner do. And like, you're your man. So you're always trying to increase your odds of your wife saying yes. And I, why wouldn't you do these little things just to increase the, the odds? Well, I don't know why you're, that, the way you're describing it, it sounds like you're practicing flossing like a contact sport. So maybe that's another problem. <laughs> that's not well, it, is. it is. How do you not contact while you're having floss? You got to really get in there and your teeth are really smushed together. It makes weird noises and there's food in there. I mean, like the whole goal is to get something that's stuck in there out of there. And I don't want to see that. <laughs> maybe it's a me thing. I just do it because otherwise my dentist gets mad. I go in and like, ah, you're not been flossing. It's like, well, sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your whole month. So go back to jamming sharp metal knives in my mouth. So that's the only reason I do it is because I don't want to be admonished by my dentist. Man, that's they it. know too. They, they, They've got an x-ray to your soul. As soon as you go in there, you're like, have you, have you been flossing? Yes, definitely. And they know the truth. Next thing you see that evil water pick cleaner, which is like something from the devil. Have you ever had that one? Oh, yeah, the water pick. And they're like, ah, oh, what do you want this thing when we put it in your mouth? Do you want uh, bubblegum flavored or cinnamon? I'm like, oh, do you mean uh, hobo's sphincter or trash bag? I guess I'll go with trash bag. I think we're getting a little <laughs> loose with the definition, calling this bubblegum or cinnamon. If I actually engage my gag reflex, you screwed up the bubblegum flavor. <laughs> I'm going to have to leave it at hobo sphincter. I feel like that's a good that's a good sort of spike the ball moment. All right. All right. Well, that works for me. Uh, well, hey, Megan, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really do appreciate it. And uh, you know what? I think this I think this form works really well for you. I think uh, I think you're sometimes limited by when you were on television. You're, you're actually a good conversationalist. You're a good conversationalist who actually takes an interest in people. And I don't think you're even if you do take an interest in people, you can't take that much of an interest in people when you know we talk about like Fox News or those kinds of those kinds of scenarios. It's like don't get too attached because you don't really get to dig deep. Yeah, no, that's true. It's been a, it's been such a, 
joy of this new format to be able to actually have real conversations and not be constantly getting wrapped in your ear. Rap, rap. And Canadian Debbie, she when she really wanted me to stop talking, she would give me the red rap, red rap. <laughs> like, okay, but there's no more red rap. And I, I am loving it. And I have to say, I want to tell the viewers that we sat down three hours ago and I told Stephen it's going to be an hour. And here we are pulling a Joe Rogan three hours later. But you're such an interesting guy. You're, I love your I just love your free will in nature. There's nothing you won't talk about. You're very honest. And good God, are you funny? You're so funny. I'm going to start watching the show more regularly and not just when I'm on it. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think this is going to be I think this is, I'm going to be really interested to watch uh, your journey as you do this completely in the way that you want to do it with no other voices, because that's the Megan Kelly that I want to see. Oh, my thanks to Steven Crowder for that. I do not remember when I have laughed that hard in an interview. His, the impressions of uh, Justin Trudeau and Ben Carson's mother had me in tears. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, too. And uh, Oh, and by the way, if you did, go, go subscribe to the show. If you haven't subscribed, that's apparently what I need. You need to subscribe uh, to the show. And then if you want to give me a five-star rating, that'd be nice. And uh, perhaps also a review. Say hi in the reviews. Some folks have had guest ideas in there. That's been fun. I always screenshot it and we talk about it as a team. And uh, I just appreciate the messages of love and support, you guys. They really do mean a lot to me. So thank you for taking the time of listening and then also reviewing and subscribing. <laughs> Next week on the show, we're going to have Clay Travis and Dennis Prager on Monday. Those guys are good. They're both really deep thinkers who come at every issue from a different angle. And uh, I'm, I've never interviewed them, even individually, never mind together. But I've, I've been interviewed by Clay, who is a thoughtful guy. And he's been sort of out fighting this cancel culture war on the sports side, you know, pointing out how woke ESPN has gotten. And that's why some of those guys don't like him. But I do. So he and Dennis are coming on the show. and We're going to have a great discussion. Have a great weekend. And uh, I look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. <laughs> 